right, everybody, welcome to the official Formula Drift podcast. And to kick it off, we've got to have, I mean, El Presidente. Like, I, I can't think of, <laughs> I can't think of anybody else that you you have on for for you know inaugural episode. Like, do you, you've, you've somebody who's been here since day one, right? Like, like pre day one, really. Like, what what what's what's that? What's this like? How, like, how do you how do you sit here right now and just go like? Yeah, it's it's been this long, and I'm still doing this thing, and you know, I, I know there's good stories of of how it all started, and, and I definitely want to get into that. Yeah, I mean, it's a little disconcerting when you think about it. Sometimes, honestly, I mean, um, th- so this is the we're going into the 20th season, right? And you can imagine, like normal Americans, you know, there's tons of rollover and jobs that they have. Maybe I think like the you know the the average is like five years for you know a, yeah. a particular job at a particular company. Um, much less like a very niche sport that really nobody gave a chance to that we were told many, many times over and over that was going to fail. Um, you know, so to, so to be around, you know, at the, at the 20th season, even with everything that we've experienced, it's actually pretty crazy. Um, and it's, uh, it's also like really exhilarating as well because it's such a milestone, you know, 20 years and then it's five more years will be 25 um, so it's, uh, you know, we're getting to that quarter century mark, which is, uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. It's crazy when you think about it that way too. Cause I remember talking to somebody about it today and I had mentioned how many weeks it was until FD and they're like, Oh yeah, nobody's actually said it like that. Like my dad, every, every year on my birthday will call me and be like, you know, how's it feel to be halfway to 64? And I'm like, thanks. Like that, like <laughs> what, what's it's put into that perspective? The whole thing changes, right? Like five years away from yeah. a quarter century. Like Jesus. So did you have any... Yeah. Like any thought that it would go this long or that you'd still be doing this like since day one? You know, it's hard to it's hard to remember a lot of the mindset um, in the early days because, you know, we were I was really young, um, you know, clearly at that point. I mean, 20 years ago, I was 22, 23. So, you know, I was just kind of like coming into like whatever you would consider to be the professional business world, so to speak, or whatever, but I'm onto the event side. And and it was very, a lot of it was very blurry for me because we were chasing something that um, we were like, this is a really, really cool opportunity and an awesome sport. Um, It just took on a completely different feel once we started doing it in America. And so, you know, it was... uh, very like abstract, I think, in the way that we approached it because we were always trying to figure out how it was going to work. Mm-hmm. And even to today, we still are trying to figure out as the sport has progressed and especially as competition has gotten more crazy, like how do you kind of keep up with all of that and when, what changes do you need to make? Um, it's such a dynamic and interesting and odd and wild sport from the onset um, that, you know, there's always something to be working on. Uh, and the fact that it's, you know, been around for this period of time is, you know, it's, it's nothing short of a miracle, I think. <laughs> so can we, cause I mean, there's a lot of people that have come into this sport over the years and, and it's grown in popularity, like exponentially, especially I would say last five has been a really big surge. Yeah. So where, where did this begin? Like, where does this idea start? You know, like, how do you even go to, yeah, let's take this crazy niche sport from the other side of the world and then make, you know, a professional version of it here in America. Yeah, I mean, there's certain parts of the story that, you, you know, the audience is 
probably not interested in like how I got into the industry and things like that or whatever. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit, but um, you know, it all really started with Jim and I meeting okay. and Jim and I met at a company um, called vision entertainment that was running you know, their most popular show was a, was a sh- nighttime car show called hot import nights. Right. Um, and I had, that was like one of my first like real jobs that I had, I was working in the marketing department there and the nighttime concept for car shows became super popular. I think at one point they were doing like 18 or 20 events a year, Jeez. you know, in, in um, pretty significantly sized venues and auditoriums and things like that. And so I was there for that, for, you know, that period of time. And they brought in Jim because Jim came from the drag racing side and they wanted to do, or they were looking at doing like a nighttime drag racing concept, but they didn't really know a, a lot about how that whole racing kind of world worked. And so they brought him in over from IDRC. So for oh, people okay. that have been around the industry for a while, people remember IDRC. Um, and he was, you know, Jim, Jim worked over there. And before that, he was, you know, working at a number of different magazines in the industry and stuff like that. So he had, he, and he's a, he's a bit older than I am. So he'd been around for a while. Um, and we just kind of clicked, uh, you know, being there. And, you know, we, there were certain things that we bonded over in, in the automotive industry, particularly with motorsports. Um, both of us were like massive Formula One fans. We just really loved it. And, and, you know, this is at that time, this is the Bernie era. Right. So Formula One was very shrouded from like what you see it today with Drive to Survive and like, yeah. you know, Housewives really love, you know, loving all that. Um, and it was something that we bonded over, you know, it's the, the Schumacher era, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And as like we kind of matured in that business and, you know, things shifted over there, we stepped out and kind of started our own um, marketing agency because what we were finding is that um, there were companies coming into the industry, the automotive industry that were were not doing it correctly. (laughs) And what would happen is and you wanted them to be in the industry, but they would come in, get a bad taste in their mouth and then leave and never come back. And so we thought that there was a real opportunity there to like say, hey, let's let's bring you in, but let's do it authentically. And so we were able to like start the agency and have business pretty much right away. We were working with like eBay Motors and Mazda and um, uh, JC Whitney. I I believe a couple other brands. Yeah, like helping them with their event activations and looking at partnerships and stuff like that. And then we'd also developed a relationship with a car show promoter out of Houston to run a three or four round uh, series of of car shows. And that was kind of like our business. And as that was going, like we were having a good time with it. We had a nice little office in Irvine. And, you know, at the beginning, we were working out of Jim's house. Um, but we, we moved into an office and doing this whole thing. And then like we heard about D1. Okay. So how that kind of happened is, you know, both him and I had known about um, drifting in D1 through basically the means that everybody else in the, in the United States did, like through option video and magazines and, and DVDs and things like that. Um, and we had heard through the grapevine that they were trying to do an event in the U.S., and they were looking basically what you would call like an RFP nowadays, right? Yeah. Like they wanted to they wanted to work with somebody that could manage it for them. And so at this point, we were like, well, let's throw our hats in the ring. And so, you know, um, one of the most important things I learned about doing business, especially like with um, Japanese based companies is like face to face is really, really important. Okay. And he understood that. So, you know, we charged up the Amex. Boom. He flew over to Japan. 
Next thing you know, we were promoting the very first um, D1 driver search in 2003, and then that turned into the D1 event right. in 2004. And off of the back of that, which is a whole other story within itself, that's how FD got launched. Okay. Okay. Huh. I've, I'm, I yeah. mean, I've heard, I've heard everything more or less like up until that. Like I, I hadn't heard all the hot import night stuff. Like I, I remember you, you like grazing over, or you know, at one point in time, you're like, oh, I just, you know, I did this stuff with Jim. And then next thing you know, it's like D1 GP and then Formula Drift. And then, you know, then we're in Atlanta. And then it just kind of, next thing you know, we're, we're kind of everywhere. So <laughs> it just seems like this yeah. like, like quick story, but like, I, I think it's so important to get to that root of like, okay, something like this can literally come out of somewhere you would never expect. It wasn't like a big business pitch and he was an investor. It's like, no, it's just two people working in the industry who took a shot at something, right? Just like, because, well, yeah. Like, I mean, uh, uh, that's a really good, that's a really good point. I think like one, one of the things that helped us, you know, besides the kind of like event experience and stuff like that, Jim on the operational side, mine on the marketing side is that, when we started the agency, one of the things we were doing, one of our big programs that we had is we were working with Mazda to basically bring automotive enthusiasts to racetracks around the country right. um, during race weekends. And that was with a, a, like a little event series called Mazda Extreme Street. And through that, we developed the Road Atlanta relationship. Okay. Through that, we developed a relationship with Laguna Seca. Through that, we learned how to deal with certain racetracks. So then when the D1 thing came around, it was very natural for us to be able to start talking to some of those people like Irwindale Speedway, like Sonoma, um, like Road Atlanta. Um, and, you know, I think in our very first year, we were, we were going to Wall, too, at that point. Yeah. And be able to, like, build off of those relationships because we kind of knew how to do that. So it, it wasn't it wasn't like the the idea and the concept of, like, doubling down and going to FD um, didn't really happen until we saw how impactful the D1 event was. Yeah. When, it's like a proof of concept, Irwindale, Yeah, and we so what we were thinking is that we were going to try to be in business with D1 for a long period of time, that we were going to be like their event producer. We had pitched them on becoming the distributor for Option Video here in the United States. And, you know, I mean, they're a big company, but they didn't really want anything to do with that. You know, they essentially told us like, look, this is kind of like a one and done type of thing. Yeah. Um, and you were going to go back to Japan and that's pretty much going to be it. And we we're like, dude, but this is kind of crazy. Like <laughs> we sold out like one of the largest stadiums in Southern California on an, on an event that really nobody even knew about unless you were like a hardcore drifting fan. Yeah. There's something here. Yeah. Right. And, and at that point, the Daijiro Yoshiharas, the Reese Millens, the Stanley Hubinets, the Ken Gushis were kind of like coming into the fold a little bit. And there was enough there there to be like, hey guys, like maybe we could do something with this. And so when they, you know, kind of respectfully said, like, we're not going to do anything else, we respectfully went back to them and said, well, we're gonna, we're gonna start our own thing then. And, you know, um, you know, there was a little bit of like, you know, I want I want to say bad blood, but kind of there yeah. was for a couple of years after that. Um uh, you know, they weren't super happy with that, but we, you know, we told them like, dude, there's an opportunity here. Um, this market is, is legit. And the proof of concept at Irwindale was the way to justify that. Um, and, you know, when they basically turned us down and we lost the license to, you know, promote their events and they stopped working with us because they weren't going to be doing any more of these things, then we launched FD. 
the ironic thing about that is once we launched FD, then they came back and started doing more events. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, I mean, it's one of those, if you didn't do it, somebody would have eventually, whether they would have come back to the market or another event promoter or even even hot import nights or something like that. One of the you know juggernauts at that point in time would have went, oh, this is the next phase, right? Because I mean, if you're, yeah, 03, you'd still be like in the heart of import drag racing. Like that's still, you know, that's still big. That's still huge. But like eventually that does start to fade away and, and people are hungry for something else. And I think that maybe yeah. that coincides with it as well as like one started to come down. I mean, the obvious transition is like a Papadakis who a lot of the newer fans may not realize was like the guy in import drag racing. Like that was, that was it. Yeah. And then obviously he made that transition. So I'd be curious to like look at those two timelines and like see how much they overlap uh, and like how much that aided in the, in the growth of FD in the early days. I would probably say, well, I, I know for a fact that um, having, you talk about Steph, um, having Steph be involved in the sport and, and going through what he did in import drag racing yeah. massively informed what not to do with drifting in the United States, because what was going on with import drag racing is at that time. So there was, there was battle of the imports, there was IDRC yep. and there was NHRA sport compact series, and they were all competing against each other and they all had general domains and stuff like that. Yeah. It's like different but sectors. If you went country. into a, yeah. And sometimes they overlapped and they competed with each other. And that's, that was the nature of what it was. But the, what the problem that developed out of that is that, if you went to an NHR race, um, say at English town or something like that, you didn't know whether or not Steph was going to be there because he might've already been committed to another oh, race in another part of the country. Okay. And so the people that you were trying to, you know, brand and grow and be part of your series weren't necessarily going to be there because all of the resources had been split between three companies. Mm. So that was a massive like I think benefit for us, even though we did have a lot of competition in the early days. I mean, there was, we had a, um, you know, we had kind of an attack from the old prime media media uh, group that tried to start a series. We had a, we had a guy from um, Mandalay entertainment, the big, the big, like, Oh wow. Um, movie making company yeah. that had invested in, in a group that was trying to do something. We had D one, we had like three or four like different series try to pop up. But because of people like Steph and other people in like the, the industry that were involved in drag racing, they kind of knew that that was a bad idea, that you'll kill a sport yeah. by doing that. And so, you know, it's better to work with a, a group that is going to try and, you know, put your interests forward um, and try to grow that and see where it can go than to kind of like have it whittled down where you don't really have an alignment amongst all the interested parties, whether you're a sponsor or a driver, you know, or somebody that's running a team or whatever. Yeah. I mean, competition, you know, does good things in, in a lot of cases when it comes to business. But I mean, at a certain point when it becomes so aggregated, um, I mean, I even go back to like, like, like the wrestling days when that was like an issue. And then, you know, Vince McMahon goes through and just buys everything and is like, never mind, I'm just going to own everything. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize there was even competition. Like, obviously, you know, D1 GP, but I didn't, I did not realize that there was even competition in those early days. So, huh. Yeah. There was, I mean, some of the series got off the ground a little bit. I mean, there was, Nopi was around for a while. Right. They were doing something kind of different than what we were doing. It was more like style um, based, wasn't it? Was it was more like 
like demo kind of thing? Like, like it, they, it was more judged on like they were. They had competitions. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure they had competitions. This is a long time I know, ago, I know. so I'm you know like my memory is not letter perfect here. But um, you know they they definitely had competitions, and they you know at that time. Nopi as a retailer was like the biggest thing in the industry. Like they had a lot of capital, a lot of backing and stuff like that. Um, and then Prime Media, I'm not sure that they got their concept off the ground, but you know, they were definitely out there selling it. Um, and then D1 was having their one-offs yeah. and the, uh, you know, the, some other events may have popped up here and there, but you know, we, we were so lucky with the relationships with the venues that we had ah. um, that we were able to basically kind of lock in our presence at those venues and be able to have a commitment from them to be able to go back and do that um, year after year. And that makes a big difference because, you know, um, venues, especially if you're a young sport, don't necessarily care about protecting your interests, right? Yeah. Like uh, they, they don't necessarily need to put a radius clause, for example, in your um, event contract to protect you for another related event. But when you have a relationship, say with a road Atlanta, um, that, bought into this, like the people at Road Atlanta were tied to the people at Mazda. They saw what was going on. They were the ones that said, you guys need to come here. We will do all these things to like pave the, the, the course to do the turnaround, yeah. the keyhole and all that kind of stuff. And we will make a commitment to the sport that this is something that we want to grow because we everybody saw the effect of the D1 event okay. and everybody wanted a piece of that. So that actually like helped us quite a bit because had that not happened, I would be had that plus the Mazda Extreme Street stuff and the track relationships hadn't hadn't happened. I think it would have been much more difficult to just cold call people and say, "Hey, we've got this crazy sport where you drive cars sideways and like let us come rent your venue." Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I would have figured that like the moment you know Attack of the Show was basically doing you know coverage for FD. That was it. Like, I'm sure G4 yeah. Tech TV <laughs> picking you guys up. You're like, oh, here we go. Like we're this is it. Like, I mean, I think that was my, at least my first introduction to it was, was through that channel. And then obviously like fell off a little bit and then kind of came back in. But like, I, I would, I would think that FD's ability to kind of try and work within the times or try and stay ahead of the times, like even you guys jumping on like Justin TV, like that, I know it's probably a throwback mm -hmm. for a lot of people, but like at the time that would have been very like ahead of the game, right? Like it, it, you're 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 not. I'm sure you guys were trying to get on syndicated television and 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 you know all the big sports channels and stuff like that. But it seemed like, hey, if that's not going to be the possibility, let's look at what what we can do. What what's where is this young audience like? How do we get to them if we can't get to them on ESPN? Well, I mean, if you're under thirty. Um it's important to remember that 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, yeah. even parts of 2008, that's all basically like pre-internet explosion times. Yeah. Um, we didn't even start live streaming until 2010, I believe. Okay. Um, we may have done we may have done some stuff, some preliminary stuff around like when we were working with Red Bull for the World Championship in 2008. And we may have, we may have done some streaming uh, uh, for that, but our primary media exposure and what we were going after was trying to get the sport on TV. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned G four. We had G four two thousand four two thousand five, two thousand six two thousand seven, two thousand eight. We were on ESPN two, yep. and we had we had 
done a basically a tape a, a tape delay style type deal, and that was our energy and our focus was live event plus television, like internet, Instagram, Facebook, like that wasn't even a thing no. for a long, long time. And uh, the really the 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 sport itself, as as I think you rightly called to, really didn't have it, its kind of explosion. Um, until a lot of those platforms like matured to where they are now and more and more people could be exposed to the sport and see it in different formats and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's, I mean it, but that, that initiative is, is obviously what separated you from that, that other, I mean the, the, the other competition in the space is like, okay, we're going to, we're just, we're going to keep pushing. Like the live thing is, is great, but that, that that's limited. That's literally limited by seats and the reach and people getting to the actual venue. But once it's within the public domain, once it's, you know, available through the airwaves, if you will, that's, you know, the infinite market, basically. It's, it's everybody that has a TV. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of, some people still have this sentiment, but it's like gone kind of away now is that um, in the early days, you know, getting your sport on television was a sign of having the appropriate credentials, right? You know, that you, that you were legitimate, that, you know, you weren't like some, you know, grassroots event that was, you know, just doing, you know, booking venues and putting on competitions or whatever, that you actually had a product. And it was obviously made very difficult by the fact that drifting doesn't have anything to do with racing, yeah. right? Like how fast you get from point A to point B. So when you go and like, sit down with like the head of a network or the person that's buying time or that you're trying to get time from. And you're saying, well, we have this sport. It's subjective. Um, their kids are really into it. It's a motorsport, but it's not, you, there's no finish line. Like that's a massive uphill battle to climb, yeah. you know? And um, it's, it was very difficult to try and figure out like who would buy into it. And, you know, we were very lucky because we got the G4 thing and then we got the ESPN deal and that, that kind of turned the spokes a little bit with some of the sponsorship opportunities that were coming our way. It builds legitimacy. It kind of like allowed, it gave us some legitimacy and it allowed us to kind of create a little bit of a runway. But it, like, as you said, it wasn't really until like the internet became mature that I think drifting really kind of like had its heyday or started to have its heyday. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, and I mean, once it, I mean, as you alluded to, like previously, like, you know, a lot of people were introduced through option and everything else, but like that that became that thing. Like you had to get that from somebody or had to know somebody or had to get a copy of it. Right. Whereas once, once sharing that becomes a button, it's, it's very different, right? Instead of it becoming a physical 100%. asset, you're just like, oh, here, I have to click this thing and now this person has this and, and now they're introduced to it. And FD, yep. like drifting in general, is just so like clippable. You know what I mean? Like it can have all these moments in, the, in a similar way to a lot of other motorsports, but like it's a lot more rare for those motorsports to have those moments where like you can just pull five seconds out of context and be excited about it, right? And it just, because it looks from the untrained eye, like drifting looks like about to crash all the time, right? It looks like a problem. It looks like an incident in the making at every single moment. And, and it's just an easy right. thing to be like, oh, like, your favorite part of, of, you know, drag racing is the burnout. Your favorite part of NASCAR is when they, you know, almost hit the wall. Okay, cool. Here's an entire event based on that thing. <laughs> if, if you, like, uh, we, we always have fun doing this, but, like, if you are listening to this and you've come into the sport, say, within the, the last five years, maybe even 10 years, yeah. 
go back and look at some of the competition from pre 2010, right? And you will get bored very fast because it's, it's so different. Right. And like, it's crazy because when I think about like being at those events, I think about, wow, I was really excited. There were crazy battles. Oh my gosh. I'm, you know, a, um, a really unbelievable disparity in vehicles. We have a Viper over here and we've got an AE86 over here. This doesn't make any sense. And having that thrill and excitement, but then I apply that to like today's driving and it's not even in the same ballpark, right? It's like a lot of times there'd be five, six, seven car gap, car gaps, um, between the vehicles. And like, you know, we, we considered that cool. And it, and if anybody ever really got any, any close, it was like jumping out of your seat madness. Now it's like, if you're not within six inches, you're not jumping out of your seat going mad. It's just, it's so crazy how it's evolved. And, um, I like going back and looking at some of the old stuff because there's a, there's definitely a novelty feel to it, but you just see how different it was at that time. Is there like a go-to clip? Like, is there one battle or like one event like that you either find yourself going back to, or if you had to direct somebody who just got into the sport, be like, look at, go type in this for me. Like for me, when I'm trying to explain to somebody like how exciting drifting is, I always send them to James Dean, Jonathan Castro in Orlando, which was arguably yeah. one of the greatest displays of chase and lead driving we've seen in drifting, in, in my opinion. Please, in the comments, feel free to argue with me on this one. But that, like, if I had to show my grandpa, if I had to show my aunt or my uncle, whoever, that's the video I send them. But, like, for the old school stuff, is there is there one you could pick out? Well, before I get to that, I'm actually glad you brought up that battle because, and I'm, uh, because Jared likes to make fun of me because when I was doing the announcing... Yeah. Um, I actually cried. I actually cried during the broadcast on that. Battle. Really, um, dude, I get goosebumps. Yeah, I have goosebumps interview- right now from that because it was it was insane. <laughs> they interviewed him afterwards, um, and uh, Jonathan Castro. They interviewed him afterwards, and like the combination of the battle plus the interview, I kind of like started breaking down a little bit. And to this day, Jared still makes fun of me for that, but it was like a moment that I got caught up in it. And so I'm glad to hear that that battle resonated with you as well. In terms of the old school stuff, it's gotta be like, so anytime you have, um, say pre 2000, let's go back to the early, early yeah. days. Um, anytime Samuel Hubinet or Reese Millen drove, you kind of expected that there was going to be a really good chase because of just like how, overdeveloped their cars were relative to the other guys. Yeah. Um, you know, Hubin had had the competition coupe that like, like probably could compete in today's competitions. And Reese, um, had his GTO, which like was massively well engineered and was really awesome to watch. So like any of those battles, you're always gonna have a good time. What was cool to watch though, when you think about those two guys and, and even Tanner to a certain degree, when he started coming in, in, in 2007, 2008, yeah is the, the Forsberg, the Gittens, the Yoshiharas, the JTPs, those people started like chipping away at that mm-hmm. and figuring out ways to get the card go faster, but still stay sideways and things like that. And so you start seeing like, if you were to compress, say like the first five years and look at the beginning and then all the way through those five years, you would see those guys, the, the, um, the non-Reese, non-Samuel guys starting to chip away and get better and better and better. There's a moment in 2007, I think it is, at Irwindale where um, Reese was going to win, I think, was it 2000? It might have been 2006. Reese was going to win uh, 
his championship. Wait, 2004, <laughs> must have been 2005. I told you there was going to be a history lesson. Um, I warned you. <laughs> <laughs> 2005, um, Reese was going to win the championship. Right. That's right. Reese is going to win the championship. And he goes up against a, the, a battle with Chris Forsberg. And Forsberg, I think, was driving the S15, the Falcon S15 yep. at that time. And there was this moment where, and this happens all the time. Like, think about Ka Jonathan Ka uh, uh, Hurst nowadays, right? Okay. Forsberg's car, like, goes around a corner and does, like, a massive, like, blowback, big flame out the back. And the, the live event audience just freaking loses it. <laughs> And I think he, I think he ended up winning that battle. I believe he ended up winning that battle. Reese won the championship, but Forsberg won the battle. He maybe even won the event, and it was like a really, really big deal. Um, those kind of things, like I love going back and revisiting them because it was just like a completely different time in the sport, mm -hmm. and the dynamic was so different. And especially for the young guys, like the one thing that I really like a lot is the Forsbergs, the Gittens, the, the Yoshiharas, the Gushis, like, like the Gen all those one, guys. Gen 1 legacy guys is kind of how I've, like, I've, I'm starting to break guys. them into generations now because we're now at that point where we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're all homegrown drifters. Yeah. That's all they did. There, there's, there was nobody really except for Reese and some, some I guess, a little bit uh, Samuel and a little bit Tanner yeah. that came from, like, a traditional racing background. Um, or that even had really been in a car before, like all those guys, like the mate, like all the DA guys and the early Gen One guys, minus those guys, were all natural born drifters. Mm -hmm. That's that's how they started in the game doing that. So like once you kind of see as they're getting a hang of the sport and they're starting to figure it out and like engineer the car and the suspension and tire setup and all that kind of stuff, you start seeing them get better and better. It's like really really cool and exciting. Yeah, you should. It would be kind of neat to like make. And like, feel free to take this idea, but like take the final battle from every Irwindale or something for every year and just show that progression of like, mm. here it is, here's the champ, or even the, even the winning battle, he writes it down. Uh, like you can take the champion, whatever the championship winning battle is, right? When it's defined, like this right. is the person, this is the champion, day one, like year one all the way through. And you could see how much that the, the sport has progressed because it's, it really is crazy how different it is. It like it's the same concept, but just how yeah. it's evolved. And even driver to driver and and I I've, you know talk about like you know the disruptors coming in at certain times like Tanner coming in as being a disruptor uh and just changing the way everybody had to perform. Uh obviously Daigo coming in, James Dean coming in. Like those were all these yeah. big moments where drift like formula drift and drifting as a whole just went, oh we're in a new era. Like we have to drive different. We have to have more horsepower. We have to chase better. We have to whatever. And it's like these like yeah. kind of bookmarks of like, this is, this is it. Like this day, you know, James Dean walks in and now everybody's chase game has to change because he read the rules, understood the assignment and went, oh no, I'm just going to door you the entire track. And and that's just what you're gonna have to do. It's deal actually with. really interesting that you that you bring that up, and because I like thinking about that too. That, that, that for me, there are definitely like distinct eras in the sport, yeah. mostly mostly promulgated by guys that were doing something that was so different that the sport had to adjust yeah. and evolve. You know, the Daigo era is definitely one. That's huge. The Dean era is is certainly another. You know, you got the Reese Sam era, and you've got T Tanner and his kind of era, and then you've got various iterations of that with say like Forsberg and Vaughn over the years yeah. where 
of the independent guys that were like trying to work on developing factory uh, backing or that they were trying to run their own program, they were bringing different dynamic things. I mean, in the early days of ASD with Falcon and then um, subsequently with Vaughn's team, like I, I actually have a memory in my mind of seeing Vaughn's car do something that didn't seem naturally correct. That's that's kind like, of typical for Vaughn though. <laughs> Like uh, yeah, every car like, he's and ever I remember run, being like, it's, it's always had something. You're like, wait a minute, three wheeling. It, it, it's not, and it's not like a like like um, you know. I'm not saying it in a negative way. I'm, this is a completely positive thing. Yeah. Like some, they were engineering the cars in such a way that it created this new kind of like dynamic within the sport itself, and it forced everybody to do something else to keep up with that because they could get around a corner with more angle faster than the other guy, yeah. right? They could they could go fast in a straight line and still be able to create really high angle in the vehicle when they needed to, slow down when they need to, speed up when they need to, you know, all the things that are like part of drifting, um, all those teams kind of contributed to in some way, shape or form. So that, I, I, I love thinking about that because there's, there's definitely for me like moments um, eras, so to speak, of drivers and teams that are making that contribution to the sport. Yeah, and and it's exciting to see and like understand. Like if you look at like how how it goes, like every whatever five years or so, like we're due, we're really really due for another disruptor, and that's what I'm really excited for. Like I think the biggest one for me, to be honest, is is like Forrest Wang coming back in, and I, I what I'm kind of hoping is like it brings back like the attitude era of drifting almost. Like I think, and I'm not even like a wrestling fan, but I think wrestling has done a good job in explaining the generational like changes. You know, like football, basketball, hockey—they all have those same things. And I mean, I could go, I, we could do this with hockey if you want, but I'm going to lose like most of the audience. But that—that that to me is like I look at that and go, okay, Forrest leaves, you know, comes back, and like I look at that going like, okay, is he going to now? bring back in this style? Are we going to like see a change in judging where that becomes a thing again, where, where that angle or that crazy style becomes what we see in judging and becomes the thing that everybody needs to do. And then gone is that like drag racing mentality. Cause we've seen that slowly fade. There was a couple of years where like, it kind of seemed like drag racing burnouts and like, you know, we, we changed a couple of things and judging changed, regulations change. So that's, that's my like, prediction for the year is and i'm hoping that that's the case because like i think that's what we're due for is let's let's see yeah. some crazy style come back into the sport again well i think i think going through a lot of those eras what it does is it kind of tells you what you don't what you do and what you don't like yeah um and what the fans do and don't like right like nobody love nobody really digs like a low angle you know kind of drag race between both guys and you you almost in a way, some of these things naturally happen and they involve, they evolve into the sport mm -hmm. to where you have to experience it in order to figure out like what the next step is. And like the Dean era, for example, was everything that the Daigo era uh, had, but it had, it had the style, it had the speed, it had the proximity, it had all those elements. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he came, he came in and raised the bar for the rest of the field. Right. And, and those guys were left chasing him. And, you know, look, there could have been, a, there was, it could have been at least one year in there where Osmo got one of those championships. I mean, oh, so literally close. in 2019, it came down to one run. Right. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, or 2018, maybe it was the, the one run with uh, the two back to back one more times with Osbo and um, Gittin, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, but we wouldn't be talking about the three, the three Pete for James Dean, but nonetheless, like in aggregate, like what he did was basically expose us to like, oh, wow. Okay. You can have style. You can be fast. You can have big angle. And maybe that is something that, um, actually I know for a fact, it is something that, that, um, that Forrest adopted in his second return, mm-hmm. um, that it, you know, went from super high wheel speed, um, slower speeds, very smooth and silky transitions oh, to beautiful. taking that and increasing the speed a little bit, right. Um, to kind of like, because he didn't want to lose in the chase run. Right. And he also didn't want people to wreck, wreck into him on the lead run. So, you know, once he kind of adapted to that and started like putting down more grip, but then bringing his style to the table, I think it actually like helped his cause a lot more, mm-hmm. um, in terms of like, then he's going as quick as everybody else, but he's still bringing that dynamic style to the table. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think a lot of drivers, the, the ones that want to, I shouldn't even say want to, because they all want to continue in the sport, but the ones that continue in the sport for whatever reason, it is that you have to adapt. You have to figure it out. That's, that is what's so cool about, I mean, drifting in particular is like, you can have your own style within it and it's very plain to see but you still have to play within, you know, the same rules and regulations as everybody else. Like, I think that's what's so different with it. You know, if you want to get, like, super analytical, you can see it in, in F1. Like, if you know what to watch for, you can see how different guys take different corners. Like, how, a, you know, Danny Rick is a late breaker, how, you know, uh, Max Verstappen and, and the way that he takes corners later than other people. But it's it's so minute. But in FD, like, you could you could have no idea what drifting is about. And look, you'd be like, oh... This guy's really, really quick, and like, oh, this guy like really throws it sideways. It gets a lot of proximity. Like, it's very, very plain to see, and you can do both and still do well. And that's that's what I like. Yeah. So I just yeah. I hope that continues. No, yeah, there, it, <laughs> I I mean I think it will. Like you know I I'm always at the end of every year I always like take inventory about like trying to you know objectively analyze how I feel about the way things went from like, not just a competition standpoint, but obviously, you know, like as a, as a business owner and stuff like that. Um, and this was a really hard year. This past year was a really hard year to do this because of how much of a, um, I guess I can cuss, uh, and your, a shit show. I was going to say, it's your podcast. Uh, Irwindale was, <laughs> uh, Irwindale was just like, like so tough because of like the weather, the rain and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And it was really difficult to do that. Um, but if we strip that out and we look at all the other rounds, um, even some of the wet rounds like Orlando, I mean, there was just like some really, really, really incredible driving and some super memorable battles and things like that. And also some things, some items of note, um, that, you know, from a, like, say from a judging perspective, you, you go back and want to look at, I mean, like we never really ever heard the general public talk about say like soccer flops in the way that they have over the past three or four years now um, because people, we never really had a sport where um, there was a rubbing, rubbing is racing style type mentality. I mean, we definitely had rubbing is racing type stuff happened. um, But the way that these cars are engineered now, sometimes it can be counterintuitive if a guy rubs up to your wheel 
and it takes the, the steering wheel out of your hand and you spin out, it doesn't look all that crazy and aggressive. But if you watch the the action and the behavior of the guy in the car it was massively violent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so you get these little things where you, somebody will tap somebody spin out or whatever. And you start seeing all this talk about like, Oh, this guy, flop, flop. he's a flopper, this and that. Oh, don't worry. I, I never on, experienced that. I plan and, on bringing that up more. <laughs> <laughs> I never experienced that in the entire history of the sport. And we've had lots of occasions, you know, where people get hit and spin out over the years and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it's, Definitely like one of those things that, um, you know, you, you want to keep an eye on, not that it's true that it could be happening and you'll never be able to get into like the intention of a person while they're driving in their head to know like what they did. Um, but, but whether or not it's like worth it to do it, um, is, is like what I'm, what I'm interested in, you know, it's like sometimes people get banged out of hell um, somebody's going to clip that. Um, and you know, they don't spin out or do anything, right. They just, they just, they just take it. Yeah. That that's going to get clipped. Here. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> see the drifting has a lot of these things. Um, oh. and then other times you get a slight little tap and somebody spins out and like, you know, it's just, it's very, very like weird. It's a, it's, it's very, very interesting time in the sport because there is such a close relationship between the vehicles now from number one guy to the 32nd rank guy. Contact is just part of the sport and it's the most challenging part of the sport for us to deal with Mm -hmm. because of all these things that we're talking about. Is there, I guess, I mean, we can, and this is a good segue into plans for this year. Is there anything coming up changing to like directly investigate that, look into it, prevent it? Because obviously... You know, it's it's the talking subject. It's kind of what it's kind of what took over. I mean, there's always talking about judging. Like since day one, judging has always been a hot topic. But this has yeah. kind of been the complaint du jour, uh, especially this year or this past year. Yeah. So I mean, um, this year being the 20th season, but also just because it's a very unique time in the sport is probably the year, but it's not probably, it is the year that we are doing the most investment that we ever had in different aspects of the business from like, you know, a, a traditional investment perspective, like taking capital and putting it into programs for certain things. Like we're in part of that right now in the podcast. Um, we've got a bunch of other things that we're going to be releasing this year. One of the things that we've been like developing over the past couple of years and what it, what in a parallel path has been being discussed in the same time is like, how do you utilize it mm-hmm. is all this telemetry data that we've been collecting off of the cars. The can data, um, yeah. Because, yeah, and there's a lot of really useful data, um, a lot of data that we would look at after the event when we were try, trying to determine something and say, uh, yeah, 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 you know, because like think about contact, right? Or think about, a you know, a crash. The natural question all the time is like, did that guy, was that guy going too fast or was the other guy going too slow? Did he, did he brake check or did he didn't? And in the, in the, in the realm of left foot braking is the norm. Yeah. It doesn't make it, it's the, the driving is so dynamic now where left foot braking is the norm that you can have your brake light on and still be moving at a normal pace. You actually have to look at the telemetry data of the car to know whether or not it was justified that that lead driver slowed down or if that was just a normal course of business. And so now, you know, we've gotten it to a point where 
we can start transmitting that telemetry data. Our goal is to basically start using that in judging this year. Um, and Damn. it's progressed a lot faster than it's, yeah, it's progressed a lot faster than we thought. Um, and you know, we, we have five, four or five major parameters that we're focusing on in the telemetry data that we would like to put into the broadcast, but that's also going to be putting put into a consumer-based application that will have many more parameters and in-car cameras for the drivers that are in, in the sport. So our idea is to outfit each of the drivers, not only in pro, but also in pro spec with a box that basically takes in all the telemetry data that's piping out video camera feeds or feed to the cloud that will go into this consumer-based application. You can go and click on Jonathan Castro and look inside of his car. You can see his telemetry data. You can see the telemetry data that we want to you know, put into that application. Yeah. But then for the broadcast itself, we have like four or five parameters that we want to focus on. We want to focus on throttle, um, our definition of D-cell, right. which is a visual D-cell that can be seen by the, by the human eye. We want to look, we want to um, bring in G-force because that's how we determine braking. Right. Um, because now that we have left foot braking, braking itself is not really informative for us because they're always on the brakes, yeah. right? And they can, they, can, they can off balance or they can balance out the braking inputs with other inputs in the car. So looking at brake pressure, for example, is basically pointless. Because you could have 90 front, 10 you could have, Yeah. Exa exactly. So we don't care about that. Um, what we care about is what the physics of the car um, is doing, basically. And, and then the last one is, is like we have a redesign um, with all of those particular things that's going into the new D-cell light. Right. So the D-cell light last, last year was basically an on-off switch red light, bad, <laughs> um, no light, good, yeah. kind of. This year, it's going to basically, it'll be like a four light system. There'll be two bars that are going down each of the A-pillars okay. or like in the front window. Yeah. Um, and if it's blue, it's telling you that it's working because we had a few examples last year where things, things came unplugged or somebody <laughs> wasn't sending data. And we don't want that, obviously. Um, so blue basically means that it's working. Uh, green on a scale will be like the acceleration pattern. Oh, right? so like as yellow. A, okay. Yep. Interesting. And I'm, I'm doing it this way, but it's really this yeah. way. Um, yellow, yellow is going to be the, the slowing pattern. Okay. So the G-force pattern. So think about, think of uh, yellow and green as opposites. Right. And then red is red is our D cell, and that will be a, a flash. So this will so fix a, a bunch of problems. I mean, not opportunities, it, let's say. <laughs> but like, if, like, look, I mean, like we're we're doing so much this year. I'm very nervous, on honestly. Like <laughs> we're, we've bitten off a lot, um, and we've just committed to doing it and making the investment and trying to put it out there. I didn't think that it would happen this fast, but for sure, like. The, the, the D-cell light or the new D-cell light is going to be really cool. But look, we have daytime events, right? So um, it's not always the most visible in daytime events. You need a super high, um, high caliber light to be able to see it in daytime events. And so that will fix some of this. Mm -hmm. But what's more important to me is us being able to utilize real-time telemetry data so, do you, so that the lights and the telemetry data would correspond. Do you think this will speed up? the flow of the show or slow it down? Like, is this become, you know, analysis, you know, paralysis by analysis, or does this become 
like informed decision? I mean, I always am an advocate for speeding the show up. Right. I mean, there's lots of things. There's at least a couple things in our rule book this year um, that are going to, in principle, speed up the show. I got to read, read the rule book again. <laughs> yeah. So like run, run one contact um, is no longer going to be whoever was at fault gets 10 minutes or whatever. Oh. Run one contact is going to be if an incomplete, if an incomplete did not happen, right? If the run didn't stop or whatever. So it's run one contact and incomplete doesn't happen. Both drivers just get five, get a courtesy five. Okay. And we're not even going to determine, we're not even going to determine fault because um, the the contact itself didn't result in an incomplete. So it's just going to be part of the judging, regular judging apparatus. Okay. So just like um, make sure that there's nothing account. broken. There's no bent arms or anything. Like you made it through the course, the car's still driving. Just take a look, come right back. Yeah. Got it. Because what ends up happening on those little, little tiny ones, right? The little ones where it's like, you know, an incomplete didn't happen. The run didn't stop, but maybe like, you know, an arm bent or something like that. The judges are like scrutinizing the replays and the runs to try to figure out fault. And all of a sudden, five, six, seven minutes gets added on, you know, over the course of an event, sometimes more by the extra replays that need to be seen. Right. Um, now, Starting in round seven last year, in round eight, we actually took the judges out of the live stream altogether. So they have their own independent replay machine, which even though Long or Irwindale was so crazy with the rain, if you just look at the time of dis from uh, the time of result relative to when the replay ended was much faster, and so was Salt Lake City. So okay. we're really happy about that. We're going to continue to do that. But we're also going to get rid of this whole fault for contact thing on run one if there's no no incomplete. So going back to your original question, yes, I'm a massive advocate for speeding up the show. Will the telemetry data or the lights and all that kind of stuff make it potentially paralysis by analysis? I would hope not because a lot of times what we're looking for in a replay is did the decel light go on? Right. Right. Do we have an angle to see the D cell light? Oh no, the sun's out right now. We can't really see it. Or, you know, <laughs> it was too smoked out. Oh no, it's yeah. Now, if we have the telemetry data, we don't have that problem because it's being transmitted to the car. So I think the V2 D cell light would be good, um, would be a progress in the right direction mm -hmm. to basically tell us more about what's going on with the physics of the car. It's not a perfect solution though, because there's just gonna be times where it's gonna it's going to make a difference. You know, we're going to be, the sun's going to be setting, the light's going to be reflecting. It's going to be hard to see the lights. The lights are going to be smoked out, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Now, now you have to lean into the live telemetry data. So the live telemetry data is something that I really hope that we can utilize come round one. Um, and we're already, you know, we're already testing it and we're very happy with the way that it's going. We may keep it behind the, the the broadcast for the for the judges to use until if unless if unless it's ready to go out you know in the first um, first event yeah um, but my goal is to have it ready to go live for the public for the first event so the public and the judges are seeing the same thing that's kind of the thing that I think you have to have um, I don't like the judges saying well well we looked at the data and it said this yeah right? I don't like that idea oh, I like theories. I like the fans being yeah. able to <laughs> yeah I like I like a replay comes up 
and you can see the relative speed between both drivers. And this guy's going at a relative speed 10 miles per hour faster than this guy. And you have a collision. Oh, well, obviously it's because this guy was going faster than he should in that section of the course. And this guy was going the speed that he should be going, right? Okay. Because we have that data to tell that story. Um, relative speed makes, I mean, relative speed made, made was an education for us in the Vaughn and Chelsea battle a couple of years ago at Long Beach. Relative speed right. is... Um, is a big time factor for almost every contact. Mm -hmm. And then when you add in, when you add in the D cell light, you add in the G forces of what a person's doing at any given moment, you're able to tell a more granular story. Mm -hmm. And the goal for us is to be able to like have whatever that graphic package looks like, be intuitive enough so that a fan can watch it and be like, oh yeah, I get it. Red means bad. Green means this, you know, yeah. like you could uh, jump into it for the first time and the learning curve is going to be so, is going to be low would be the ideal scenario. Yeah. Cause I think of uh, a good example of this would have been St. Louis, Hearst and Gucci, where if you look at it, like Hearst hits, like Gucci initiates and Hearst hits him as the D cell light turns on. Like it's like, Frame by frame, it is it is like that moment. Like doors touch, D cell light turns on. It's like, well, if he's pushing him, that D cell light wouldn't have came on. But it was like that perfect moment where Hearst comes in and just like like and and the dude is aggressive. So like he's right on Ken's door. Something happens with Ken's car, possibly, and like based on the stream, it's like no nope, D cell light wasn't on until after contact. So therefore. So, but it's like one of those weird situations where something like this, where you have a threshold where you can see, like in that situation, you could have seen, okay, ding, 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 it's going yellow. Then he hits, okay, he was slowing and and there's that. But then it's like, okay, well, it's an initiation. You're going to slow a bit unless it's a clutch kick and, and the first turn in Seattle is, anyways. I'm just, I, for me, like as somebody who's just, you know, uber nerd over the data around drifting, I'm kind of like, I don't know if this is going to make it easier or harder for me. Like, I might be up later at night, like, going frame by frame on stuff, being like, okay, we have two bars of yellow, <laughs> and, like, this is what happened. So, uh, Well, let me just say something about that, because, like, I, I, I kind of feel you a little bit. Like, um, I have told my team, my internal team, but also, you know, the external team judges and stuff like that, yeah. this, this particular thing many, many times over be careful what you ask for because um, I just get it. <laughs> once we had, once we adopt these things, right? Um, you don't know what Pandora's box is going to be opened up, and it could cause more problems than you think. And the reason I say that is because when we first started collecting telemetry data, it was like so eye-opening and so telling in terms of how counterintuitive it was. Oh. Um, what we were seeing physically with the cars and what the data were tell was telling us made me think, geez, we, we, we're going to have to interpret this data, right? So what are the questions that we're having problems with that we would like to answer that we can get simple answers to that don't take another layer of interpretation that are just going to cause more issues, mm -hmm. right? Because once we open this door, once we go down this road, um, it, we, the, there's a real chance that it could backfire on us and like be a big problem. Um, but what, what's encouraging about it is that people trust computers. 
<laughs> right. That's one of the people, yeah. people really trust computers and they don't trust people. And Just there's a, wild. there's a philosophy. <laughs> I know it, it is, but you know, from a computational perspective, you can understand it, right? Oh, yeah. Like, um, I, I don't know that it is going to be, you know, the, um, the Goldilocks thing that we want. Um, but I think the way that we're trying to design it is in such a way that when we looked at the data after events and we were trying to get answers to the questions that we wanted, had we had those answers in real time, it would have had a, it would, would have made a difference Ooh. and people would have been able to see that they would have been able to see the relative speed difference between Vaughn and Chelsea and Long Beach. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that, that, even when Chelsea grabbed the e-brake for a second, it didn't trigger a change in momentum. Yeah, but it all, but it looked, but it looked like yeah, he grabbed e-brake. But again, because of the, how these cars are designed and developed, he could do that without losing momentum. So what we learned in that battle was this: for example, Chelsea grabs the e-brake. Right, it did not induce a decel okay. on our definition of a decel. That's question one that it answered. We also learned that Chelsea was at a relative speed for that run that he was similar to all of his other runs in the lead. And Vaughn was like eight miles per hour faster. Okay. Huh. Now, had we had that in real time, had we had that in real time, that result would have been different. Yeah. Vaughn, one judge Vaughn went, yeah. one judge went for, uh, for Chelsea and the other two judges went for Vaughn because intuitively you see e-brake contact, right? E-brake right. e contact, e-brake crash. Oh, Chelsea is the one that did that. Okay, but now the data is telling us a different story. Well, that that e-brake grab is just, it's still, like if, if you think about the way that drifting on like a physical tire to pavement aspect works, we are actually boiling. You are driving on a liquid, right? Like that rubber is yeah. is is vaporizing. And, and if anything, it, a, a liquid and a gas, like you have, similar to how skating works, Right. Like that—that's how ice skating works. Your that blade is is melting the the ice and creating a pocket of water, and you're floating on it. So that e-brake, that tire is still the same temperature. So you're still riding on that same bit of liquid, liquid rubber in this case, to to get it to to slide. So yeah, that's interesting because I would have thought the same thing, especially with those tires, like especially that sidewall. Like I would have figured you you grab the e-brake. That sidewall bites in a little bit. You drop maybe three or four miles an hour, and, and that's what it is. But I guess in that split second, you're still floating on that same patch of of you know liquid liquid rubber at that point. I mean, dr drifting is so is very counterintuitive, and yeah. especially like in the modern drifting era, the way that um, these cars are being engineered and built. I mean, like I remember like laughing, like I love Vaughn, like he's a but he's a good friend of mine. Um, and we've had, a, you know, some good like spats over the years, but we like, we've really had developed a, a strong relationship, I think in the industry. And I remember him saying sometime, something one time in a driver's meeting, it was just so funny. It was like, so well-timed. He's like, when I pull my e-brake, I go faster. <laughs> and I remember that was probably back, um, like when we introduced the, the, um, the braking light. Right. So if you remember, a few, like many, many years ago, we had a braking light and that was because we wanted to see when people were braking. And that was the first iteration of the light. Yeah, I do But then that. what happened is the cars developed in such a way 
where left foot braking became a norm. I think so then Odie, that light became yeah. confusing. Odie was yes. like the big proponent. Yes. He's like, listen, I can go faster left foot braking than I can without it. Like you need to understand that like this is loading up the engine. This is doing, you know, it, it's allowing me to dig into the corner, grip better in the front end. Like this is doing more. This isn't slowing down. This is this is going faster. Yeah. Um, I, and it's just like, it, it's if you don't know about the engineering of the cars, it will sound insane to you yeah. to say that, that, and and I'll, and like we that was a big mistake that we made right is that we were not like the the development of the cars was outpacing the use of that piece of technology oh. because that piece of technology had a relevant um it played a relevant role in the judging for a long time and people were on board with it for a long time but as the cars got engineered and left foot braking became the norm now you're seeing that the, that light hit all the time on the bank mm -hmm. right in the old in that in that era and it's not, and that's in the way that it was supposed to be judged is that's bad. Yeah. Right. But that's not bad. No, it's right? pushing so you back up into the that wall. Kinda, and, yeah. That dialogue between us and, and the, the athletes is something that we've like really had to um, take seriously because, you know, we're not sitting in their shops all the time as they're engineering these cars, but these cars are doing like some absurd, very counterintuitive, crazy things. Yeah. And if you don't bear that in mind, you're going to end up having stuff that's going to confuse fans for sure. Yeah, like, I mean, going back to RTR, like the, the, the kind of the weight jacking, the three-wheeling error, like that was one. I mean, it was definitely right. a showpiece, but like at that time, the horsepower levels that they're running, the grip that's running in the car, you know, they're using even like old school, like gas or drag racing style of like, no, you bring the front end up, the back end loads, and now we can do this thing. Like I couldn't imagine trying to drive that car though, but that was something that we hadn't really seen done on purpose at least. And then they utilized that technique and yeah. everyone's like, the hell do we do with this? Like, is how do you have better yeah. turning angle with one less wheel on the pavement? Somehow that's letting you get through the corner faster and like more accurately. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it is, it is wild. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all, it, it's all a question of physics. Um, you know, and, and physics is a, is a very robust and well-known thing. Um, but when you apply it to drifting, like it's just very, very, it's a very different story. And, you know, even though we've been doing this for 20 years within the past, like five years, I think, you know, like you kind of mentioned like the past five or maybe even 10 years, like the cars have just changed so much Yeah, and it's become so different. I mean, it's still the same thing. Like you said, it's the same thing. It's cars going sideways or whatever, but <laughs> I don't even think like the cars of yesterday could hold a candle to the cars of today with what they're doing. Yeah. Even, even at a, I mean, the prospect level, like I remember seeing, uh, yeah. die, I think it was die's championship car and just being like kind of nerded out by it. And, and Mike Kojima was there. And I'm like, this thing's like epic. I'm like, this thing's incredible. And he's like, yeah, wouldn't even bring it to a grassroots event now. And I'm like, really? He's like, yep. He goes, no, nah. he goes, this thing's like, yeah, at the time, top of the line. Right now, he goes, it's, you know, you could have tires on it all day. I'm like, that's so crazy. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's progressing so fast. I mean, it's exciting. Like I, I, I love just trying to keep up. I like trying to, you know, predict and get ahead of it and understand like, where are we going? Like, what are these different things? Like, you know, is, you know, all these, all these, especially, especially as the teams get more funding, get more research, pull things from other industries. Like it just, you know, aero, like aero stuff, trying to direct smoke like that. That was a thing for a while where guys are like, no, well, let, let's get the smoke in their face. Like we will do things to the car to do that. Or like, let's make the cars look different. So that way 
or crumple zone so that way we can be in the wall deeper but not affect the car. Like these are all these really strange things that affect judging and affect the interpretation of what's happening on the track but allow us to progress and go, you know, closer to the wall or closer to the driver, be more consistent. Uh, it's, I don't know, it's, it's wild. Like, you don't, you don't see that in other sports. Like, you just don't. Like, F1 you do, but it's so hard to no. understand, right? Like, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, like, the way, here's the way I like to think about it um, and why it's different than F1, for example. Like, you can know everything that's going on with the, with the physics of the car through telemetry and F1, but at the end of the day, somebody's got to finish ahead of another person. Yeah. That's, that's not the thing in drifting, right? And so there's a completely different application there. Knowing about what's going on in the physics of the cars and how the car is being manipulated is part of the story of what you're trying to tell in determining who wins the battle over the other guy. Ooh. Now, there are obviously some simple things like if a guy's got a big gap or whatever, right? Um, but, you know, if a guy's got a big gap but he's running super low angle and he got out of the first corner really fast because he was running that low angle, right? You know, that's a story that you can tell now. Mm -hmm. Um, but where it really makes the most difference is like fault for contact, who crashed into who, who was really driving the speed they should have been driving that area, who was going faster. When did this person decel at one point, like all those questions that we were able to get the answer to after the fact, if we're able to get that stuff in real time, I think going back to your original question, I think that it will actually speed up the show. Hmm. At least I hope it will. Um, because we've decoupled the judges now from the live stream altogether. They have their own replay machine. Um, and their, their goal is always to be able to make their, get, get their answer by the time that the re the last replay from the live stream has ended. And they, they're sitting there looking at their own screen. They have their monitors here like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've got a guy that's doing the controls for them. Sean Adriano, who's a, who's a drifter himself. Yep. He already knows like what they want to look at. Right. Yeah. So like he's already sped that up. Now couple that with, we already know that we want to find out what happened with Hull and Denofa on outside zone two in Salt Lake city. Right. So, so, so now let's pull up the corresponding data. Yeah. And that comes up in real time. And the judges have, it has a question. I want to know if whole, uh, decelled, or I want to know if Denofa ran into him with low angle. Mm -hmm. And my only resource to do that now is to watch the run. Right. Yeah. And try and judge and, the, and look the to relative see if the, speed. Yeah. And to look to see if the light went on and to, and to hope that my human intuitions, my human evaluation isn't playing a trick on me. But I also know in the background that that happens all the time because the computer tells me it does when I look at this stuff after the fact. My computer tells me that after initiation in St. Louis, there's a speed, a relative speed drop off that's not triggering the D cell light that we're not talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's happening to everybody across the board. And that makes a big difference if you're a guy in the chase position that knows that and takes that approach and initiates right next to the guy, knowing that he's going to have a 5% sloughing of speed. And you know that, right? But it's not enough to trigger the D-cell light. So here, okay, here opens up a giant can of worms. Are we, are we, I say we as in like, I'm already like part of the team here. Uh, 
is FD like is that information going to be public to the drivers from practice? Like, will driver A be able to go download all of the telemetry data for the person they're about to go up against and be like, this is what he's been doing all day? And does that now open? Not all. Okay. Not all, because some of the some of the telemetry data needs to be protected um, because the teams obviously, not just telemetry data, but data coming off the cars yeah. need to be protected. But the relevant physics um, that we would use, um, I think in principle could be so, um, part of the plan. I was going to say, does a spotter now become a data analyst? Like no longer the Probably. days with, with somebody with good eyes, it becomes, okay, I've, I've mapped both of these on graphs and this is what you're doing, what he's doing. So understand that at two, he's going to e-break, you know, at this point. So you're going to have to do the same thing. Like that's, that's where so, I'm, like, I mean, I'm going yeah. with this. This this could One literally would fundamentally change like spotting, driving, prep, like everything if they have that information well, before the battle. So what they would have access to is they would have access. To, I mean, it depends on how we display it too, right? Yeah. Because the D cell light is telling that story too. It's just it's not um, putting that into numerics per se, right? Right. The the D cell light is basically telling you. Green is acceleration, red is deceleration, or uh, yellow is deceleration, uh, red is decel, and and blue is on. But blue, you know, that's not relevant. Yeah. Um, the 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 five components of the telemetry that we want to collect are going to have to be um, numerically evaluated in some way in a graphic system for like the public facing app. Mm -hmm. So I could certainly imagine, I could certainly see a situation where that stuff is online. And teams are utilizing that, um, and you know, spotting be, does become a different thing. But you know, you see again. See, this is what happens. This is right? what I like, mean. Yeah. You start. You yeah. You you put the, you put things into play, and you don't know what the downstream effects are going to be. You know what the logical possibilities are, right? Yeah. But there's li there's literally limitless log logical possibilities, um, and then which ones of those are going to come to fixation in terms of the way that it changes, like how the sport operates, is the interesting question. Yeah, that's you know? like that's that's where I go. Like, is you know, is a driver going to have somebody at home who's just sitting on a computer pulling all this data, mapping it out? You get your pairing after qualifying, and he goes, "Cool, this is what you're doing to what he's doing. Here's a digital simulation of that that I've somehow plugged into a set of Corsa, and you can watch based on your run and his run what the hypothetical run will be before you guys ever do it. Because, like, for me, that's what I would do. <laughs> and I know if I'm thinking that, there are way, there, there are thoughts from somebody like, like, you know, the RTR team, from the Papadakis team, but, like, even, 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 I mean, any team, right? That's, that would yeah. be my concern so, with it. But like, not even a concern, that's my started, excitement with it. Where like, you could, you could plug this in, even in the live stream. If somebody could do this faster and do it on the live stream, and be like, based on all their data, this run could go this way. And this is what it could look like. When we first started going down this road, I was really grateful that we had Kevin on our team because yeah. Kevin, you know, comes from the championship Forsberg racing team, spent a lot of years there, knows what it's like to run a team, knows what it's like to run a championship team, knows what it's like to go up against other teams mm -hmm. and what you don't want other teams to know. And so he's been kind of 
leading the way on the telemetry data that we want to put out into the public that we think is going to be informative um, and also what stuff to block as well, like on the consumer side, right? Like yeah. there's literally like hundreds of data points that could go on the consumer side, but we probably, you know, we need teams need to have some privileged information yeah. that they don't want going out there, but the physics of the car Braking, acceleration, G-force, all that kind of stuff. I, to me, that's fair game. Oh, man. I can't wait. I just can't wait to see what people do with it. Like, being a data nerd myself, like, I know my head's already going. Where I'm like, oh, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. Like, these are all these hypotheticals we could do. Like, like I said, literally, in the, in the same way that F1 does with simulations, they run hundreds and hundreds of simulations before a race ever begins to understand every option. And they have that constantly running. And now that this is a possibility, that becomes a thing. But that also opens up like, cool, now AMD or Intel's like, oh, you have this data? Okay, well, now we're a sponsor. We're going to give you access to this server that can crunch all this data for you. And now AMD and, and Intel is now a giant sponsor and we have real money in and the tire, like, issues about budgets just disappear overnight. So I know I, like, I like took that uh, and ran I, with it, but... <laughs> look, like, I... Um... I've been criticized before, no. um, and Jim too. Like we are not, we are not um, very good like hype men, um, and we're you know we're promoters by by nature. Um, but we never really like we're not the kind of people that put out press releases. Look at how great what we're doing this whatever. Like we've just never that's really never been a kind of our thing. Yeah, um, we just like to go do we like to go do stuff and like tell and then people get to see what we're doing. In this particular case, in this situation with this live telemetry data, like there's so many things that I'm like so stoked on that I know about um, in terms of the partnerships, in terms of like how game changing it could be, how positive it could be for the series, for competition, the clarity, all that kind of stuff. Like I really want to jump on the band bandwagon and talk about it, but I also really want to. I want to do it first yeah. and, and see how the public reacts to it and see how the teams react to it before I do it, uh, before we do it. Because, you know, look, like data still has to be interpreted, you know, mm -hmm. um, all the things that we're talking about are pretty intuitive and easy to understand. Um, but I'm sure in the application, in the way that it's being utilized, all that kind of stuff, I'm 100% I'm certain there's things that we're not seeing. You know that that teams are going to utilize or teams are going to request that we implement into you know the programming because it's not just data going into the live stream. In fact, that's the second part of the component. The first part of it is going to be this telemetry data that's being piped into the consumer application, right? Because the consumer application is basically something that we're providing to the general public. That's like. You want to go inside Jonathan Castro's car? You want to listen to what he's saying? If he has that's, his mic turned on or whatever, that's like it's a whole other thing, right? It's a whole other. I know, I know, I know, I know, and I'm and I already knew, I already knew that because I knew, you know, we've done that before. Um, you know that you could go do that, and then you could see the telemetry data. You could go and you know you could scrub through his runs. You can get an inside perspective of what's going on in his car. Like there's all these really cool consumer applications that we kind of borrowed from the F1 app mm -hmm. on that now the technology is there to be able to do it. Um, and that's that's step one. Step two is putting it in the live stream. So, um, you know, that that part is gonna be super interesting because now like we have like, potentially we have this consumer thing that teams will use for the purposes that you're talking about. Yeah, but also consumers are using to either educate or, or 
not like not manipulate, but like discuss and and builds, you know, that 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 communication of like, oh, did you see like this thing did that thing? Like what's going on? Like, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just like too much of of a drifting nerd, but I know there are more like me. I know I'm not alone in that community. But that's what I hope though, is that it takes those casual viewers and gives them something where they're like, oh, hang on. Like I can dive deeper into this. That's always been my my biggest wish with with FD is that we would have a ravenous fan base enough where, um, uh, and, and I feel bad for like constantly going back to F1, but it's just like, it's one of those places where like you can see all of the microcosms within the grand scope of a sport. Uh, there's a, a photographer that I follow named Kim Ilman. And this dude has video series on the watches of all the F1 drivers and the shoes that they wear and the cars that they roll up in and their schedules and all of these like very minute details that like from a casual viewer, you're like, I don't care what shoes, you know, Lewis Hamilton is wearing or what outfit Lewis wears every day because yeah. it's always different. And I know that now. But it's it's one of those like, you know, is is the is the interest in that because someone's providing it or are they providing it because there's the interest and i really feel like mm. there is that level of interest somewhere in fd just no one has gone that far like the the fd stats thing was great for a long time cuz like there were a ra- there was a ravenous group of people like me who would look into that and understand win percentages and understand that like tony angela would actually judge harder against other drift alliance guys he would never give them a break like it was the actually it was the opposite it was a problem in the other sense but it took somebody to provide yeah. that information so i hope that like yeah. with this we we provide that information to the nerds like me to the to the obsessive that like now they have another thing that they can pour over between events and just keep them engaged all the time. So. No, I agree. I mean, look, like we started going down this road about five years ago. It's, it was like, it's so expensive. And like when COVID hit, like there were some real questions about whether or not the business was even going to be viable in the first place. Um, And, you know, once we got out of that and we got to 21, you know, the, the irony of COVID is that basically because we did something in 20, we captured a lot of audience share that we didn't have prior to that. Right. And that's really helped accelerate the business and allowed us to do these things faster than I expected that we'd be able to do them. And now we just need to go do it and see what happens. So, um, you know, I'm excited that, you know, we've gotten it to a point where we've told teams about this mm-hmm. and, you know, they've, we've, we started testing it last year at least the, the, the broadcasting of um, and figuring out the latency between broadcast of the data coming off the cars to the to the point of reception and basically got it down to real time. So <laughs> like we, we've already seen it behind the scenes and now it's just about like building out the consumer-based app and then figuring out the best way to get it into the live stream so that it could be there as a judging tool, but also hopefully as an educational thing as well. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, We're, I sorry, I've like kept you on this like, this this path for for too, far too long in this conversation. Um, what what else? Like, what else? What else? Like if that's like step one, like that already tells me this is one of those years where it's different. Like I, I don't want to call it too early, but like this is one of those like okay, this is a definitive moment in the change. Similar to like you know <laughs> we joke about it now, but like the dial of judging, right? We're like, it's kind of laughed about now, but like that was one of those moments where we're trying to do what you're talking about now just with a physical or human. That's hilarious that you know about that. Oh, dude, come on now. Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> like you don't. <laughs> The, yeah, like, and you have to tell people because like that. Not a lot of people know about the dial. The dial, man. You can okay in real time. <clears throat> the judges were trying to make decisions in real time and would have a dial that they could turn from one driver to the other, so you could hopefully see in real time where they're being swayed left or right. And there was like crazy times where it'd be like going to one way and then something happened, it would just snap the other way. And then I believe there was like a couple of technical issues where like it would bounce around and like it just became a meme in itself. But it was like that first thought of like, how do we inform, how do we inform the general audience? Because that's the hardest part is like, how do you take a casual viewer or a non-viewer and, and get them up to speed? Because like NASCAR, it's easy. Cars go fast, first guy across the line, you win. But like for me to introduce it to my dad, I'm like, okay, so we've got, you know, we've got three judges and this guy does this thing and this guy does that thing. And like, yeah, I know it looked cool, but like he was way offline. So it doesn't matter. Like it's so hard to get that into somebody's brain and get them up to speed quickly. So the dial, I feel like, is, was that yeah. first attempt to be like, okay, you can know nothing about it, but this guy says he's doing well. So that's all you need to know. Right. Yeah. And the dial was adopted <laughs> off of like what what people used to use in political debates, right? Remember, oh. You know, if you watch it, if you watch a political debate, it would be like, oh, this, oh, he's saying something that resonates with the audience, and then, oh, no, 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 he's going down. It was adopted off of that. Yeah. And Street League used it um, for for a while as well, something kind of akin to that. And then we were like, oh, yeah, you know, that is kind of cool. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, you know, we want the judges to tell us what's going on in their mind in real time. Mm -hmm. Tell us which way are you leaning, you know? And that was kind of the idea behind it. But yeah, that's so funny. That's crazy. <laughs> oh, come on. I get, I, I, look, it's like, I got, I got, I got told I'm doing this. I'm going deep. I'm, I went back to the first yeah, poke. You, like, that's deep. I went, I dope, I deep dove your Facebook today and the evolution of your <laughs> facial hair has been incredible. Uh, also, who would win yeah. in a DJ battle, you or Frederick Osbo? Uh, Freddie's like a new, like I was very serious about oh, it for I know. many, many I've years. I've seen all the event Freddie, posters. Freddie, Freddie, Freddie uh, is kind of like new to the game. So I, I don't, I think he wouldn't. Do you, I think we, I think we do yeah, this. Probably I, win the popularity contest. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but I mean, like on a technical aspect, if you were like disc scratching, like, do you think you could, do you think you could take them or? You know, um, well, I mean, I started off as a traditional vinyl record DJ yeah. um, and did that for a long time and then kind of came back to that, you know, as a, as a, like a nostalgia thing. But when I got into like electronic music, it was more like compu computer, computer based stuff. So yeah. beat matching and stuff like that's all given, but there's other things that were kind of being added into it that you're trying to do this like set. So I wasn't doing like a lot of like hip hop instrumentals, scratching, dropping in all that kind of stuff. Okay. In my in the later years, I saw your hands I get right back into it though. Your hands just knew what to do. <laughs> like you didn't even I don't even know if you knew you no. did it. Anyways, um, all right, <laughs> let's. But is there is there anything else that we could talk about going into this year? Because like we've already, in my mind, this is a huge discussion point. But like, what else can you talk about that we're that that's being changed? So I mean, there's definitely going to be like if we're talking in the judging realm. Um, and the, like the production realm, there's, there are going to be things that are noticeable. Um, but I would say relatively significant, like okay. the qualifying format is completely changing. Um, sorry, it's not right to say it's, it's completely changing the way that qualifying is being judged is completely changing. Meaning that our old system was a sector based system, right? We had a line judge an angle judge and a style judge, right? Now, the way that we're going to do it moving forward is all three judges are going to be 
adopting kind of an old school way of judging with a new flavor to it. So the old school way of judging is that you judge the run based off of the deductions made and you take that off of a hundred points. Okay. And then basically you give a score. And so our current judging system, meaning last year and previous iterations was really like super transparent for the drivers because they could see on their score sheet where the mistakes were made what they had to improve on. Right. Um, and especially in a two run qualifying format. So prior to like the higher driver count that we had going from run one to run two was really important to see all that stuff, see how the line judge was treating him, see how the angle judge was treating him, and then broken down in the individual sectors. My overall criticism of that um, was that it kind of falls into like this thing that I feel like there's a constant tug and pull with, with the series and the teams is that, I feel like you have to be careful about how many how many things in the judging space are more driver centric than fan centric. Okay. okay. So an example of the, so an example of that is a driver centric rule is a competition timeout. Right. A driver centric rule is a one more time. Um, a fan centric rule is eliminating competition timeouts and eliminating. One more time. I mean, I don't know. I, I would say one more times are pretty fan centric. I mean, when they, they, when they are, yeah, you know, when they they, they when are, works. yeah. I'm just using it. I'm using it when they become a, when people talk about it as a crutch. Okay, gotcha. Right? Um, <clears throat> I don't want to make the tough decision, so let me give it one more time. Right. Um, but in in general, in general, like like there's going to be battles that you're going to be split on in your mind. But if you really needed to choose somebody, you could, mm. right. There's, you, you can, you could give that little, there could be that little ounce, right. But if you have a parameter that says, if it falls in that ounce falls into this parameter that it goes one more time, you're going to get a lot of one more times yeah. on areas where it's just like, ah, just, you know, run them again. So that's a driver centric thing because it tries to make the bat, the results more clear and competition timeouts are a massive driver centric thing because it basically keeps them in competition um, when something faulty goes on with the car, right? That may, may be their fault or may not be their fault. And that's why we had to bring in somebody like Lorette to cover that stuff because nobody knows what's going on with the car. It just drags the show on. Oh, another competition timeout. Yeah. Another competition timeout, I want to know why, like what, what happened? Like what's <clears throat> the, yeah, what's, what's the deal, right? Right. So that's, that's all these like things that are like, they, they are tied to each other. So in qualifying, the current qualifying format, in my opinion, as of last year, was very driver centric because it was very, very granular on what a driver could learn about how a judge judged them. Right. I don't think that fans judge like that at all. Fans do not do sector scoring. They're not sitting there being like knowing at the top of their head that the line on outside zone one is worth 10 points. The line at outside zone two is worth five points. Yeah. And doing that analysis because they have the key, they have the scoring key in front of them. What they're doing is they're doing this uh, kind of weak initiation, midline, uh, slow transition, big e-brake pull, um, <laughs> a good smoke line there, nice angle. Cool. Oh, and on, that's how they're me. judging it. <laughs> yeah. I know that's saying. how I do it. <laughs> yeah. That's how I do it. Yeah. Right. And like, and because a lot of times I'm watching it as a fan. So what we try to do, like I went to the, dri the drivers and said, could we meet in the middle on some things to make the series more fan friendly? One of, I think, could be qualifying, right? I think we could create a system that's more intuitive to fans that won't necessarily change the way that you prepare as a team. 
but that hopefully can be more intuitive for fans and still transparent to you. So okay. the way it's going to work this year, the way it's going to work this year is basically um, you're still going to have line angle style um, and they're going to be worth a certain percentage of each of your score. And you're still going to have X factors Ooh. because we think that that's an important part. We still, we, we believe very strongly that there are some drivers that can check all the boxes and be a 90 and some drivers that check all the boxes and just do a little bit more. Yeah. Like you, you feel that they just do a little bit more, more throttle control, you know, closer to the walls, crazier, quicker dynamic transitions or whatever. And like, they just have that little more gusto. You think Dean, think Denofa, think, you know, Peter Vincent, think, think JCP, Bond, you know, like, yeah. all the, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we want to have that, but basically what, what it's going to be is a deductive based system. Okay. So, Judges are going to go through, they're going to have their pad, they're going to make deductions as they see them, and they're going to, they're going to um, attach a points value to each of those deductions. So they're going to quantify the points deductions, right? So let's just say you have like five or six deductions on a run, those, all those deductions are going to be quantified, mm -hmm. and then that's going to be deducted off the points total, and then you're going to add your X factor points. So, and then once, and that will, the, each judge will do the same thing. All they'll be looking for is mistakes. Okay. And those mistakes will be will be quantified. That will be deducted off of the, the 90 points it's possible for line, angle, and style. Right. And then you have 10 possible points, 10% of your score um, for X factor. So what you'll see is judge one, 89 plus four okay. equals uh, 93. Yeah. Judge two, same thing. Judge three, same thing. Those three scores averaged. Oh, so no more like crazy. Every like everybody's got a ninety-two, like like six people all with a ninety-two, and then we get into like the minutia of like okay, who had more style? Okay, those guys tied. Okay, who had more line? Okay, those guys tied. Okay, now it's down to angle. Okay, who was born in the Lunar New Year? Okay, now that's our next person, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think you will still have some ties on the averages just because of the nature of the way that the math works out. But yeah. you'll have less probably. Um, and so we still, we will still have tiebreakers that are similar in the past, but now what's going to happen is the, the runs are going to be treated based off of their deductions first. And then those, and then all three judges are going to be judging on exactly the same things, right? There's not a line judge. There's not an angle judge. There's not a style judge. Okay. Every judge is looking for deductions and quantifying those deductions. So this is, this is like, <laughs> where it gets scary for me. Yeah. This is where it gets scary for me because you can have a line judge and an angle judge um, have different scores because line and angle can, in principle, be de decoupled from each other okay. in our old system. Yeah. You know, not completely, but they can be, you could have a very good line score and a crappy angle score. Let's just say that, right? Yeah. Um, you can't have that in this system. If you have a judge that gives a 75, an 85, and a 95, we've made some mistakes because they're treating those mistakes with different levels of scrutiny. Oh, you're just setting yourself up for controversy, sir. I just, yeah, I'm just, I, I feel like you already know this, but maybe I'm just like priming you for it, but damn, you've lost some sleep. Because I, I, <laughs> I want, I, well, and we've like, what are the things that we've been working on is like going through the runs and, having them go through the runs without looking at the scores yeah. and having them do the, the judging of those runs to see, and then to talk to each other and say, 
how much of a mistake do we think this is? Because remember, in the old system, it's awarding points. Right, right. right. You're awarding points. This is deducting points off for mistakes that are made. And then you add on the X factor points at the end. Okay, now on a transparency to the fan base and the drivers, are we going to know which judge provides what score? Or are we going to leave that blank? No, you'll know judge one score, judge two we, score, judge three score. Judge one's name. Because this is this was my issue being a fellow Canadian with Lontane is like it's really easy to pick out which one Lontane is. It's not as always as easy to pick out, you know, between between the other two judges. So that's what I'm wondering is like, do we are we labeling these? Are you just gonna have a little Canadian flag again? Um, that's interesting because like I always like to have their names. Yeah. Because I wanted them to be accountable. I wanted them to be accountable for their things. But that was actually a, like kind of a philosophical disagreement that we had with other people in the company that we didn't really think it was professional to have the judges' names um, in, in the public. That, that no other judging sport says the person who is the judge. Right. It just basically says the American judge, the Brazilian judge, the such and such, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then you can look up who that person is. Yeah. So that's why we went with the flags. But I mean, that's interesting that you say that because I used to say that a little bit too. I used to be like, well, I want, I want them to feel the pressure of like knowing that if they uh, did something that people are going to know who, who they are. Best boss you know? ever. <laughs> I mean, you're going to know this, you're going to know this year, um, we didn't talk about this, but you're going to know this year uh, much easier, even though we will talk about it. We'll say, hey, you know, Brian Edgar is the, is the American flag on the top and Chris Yule is the American flag at the bottom. We will say that. Okay. But, you know, we are having Robbie Nishida is coming back this year. So we have a rotational panel of judges this year as well. That's another so big thing. Actually, a we have a rotational flag. panel of yeah, so we'll have a Japanese flag. Because nice. remember, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but like when he was judging before, we had that. Yeah. It was the Canadian flag, the Japanese flag, and the American flag. Yeah, but then it's easy um, to figure out. It, There's two American then, flags. Like it could be, I mean, it's pretty, in my opinion, it's pretty f easy to pick out which one's like Chris. That's, that's how I pick it out because Chris seems very non-confrontational. Where like, if, yeah. he, if he doesn't have to split it, he won't. He just one more times it, which I'm okay with. Like that's that's his style, but that's usually if there's two, you know, if there's an if there's a decision on the American flag, you know, you think that for Chris? Yeah, that's funny. You think that for Chris? Yeah, I think so. Do you think yeah, that, I for think that for Brian? I think that for Brian. <laughs> Maybe I've had yeah. it backwards this whole time. <laughs> I just just and the only reason I may, I I'm come to that conclusion is just like in the odd time that he's been on the broadcast, he's just kind of like I don't know the way I felt. Like he seems so relaxed about it, whereas. Whereas Dude, Ryan is... He's not. I, I, he's not. Well, he hides it well. <laughs> Look, he takes... He... Okay. <laughs> I want to be I want to be careful and be respectful to him. Yeah. Chris is one of the hardest working guys that I know in this sport. Okay. For the job that was forced on him to do. <laughs> and it was tremendously difficult for him to experience what Ryan and Brian and Robbie have experienced for the past 10 years right? for the past two years for Chris. Very, very difficult, right? And I'll let him say, you'll probably talk to him sometime I this year. I super want to talk to I'll him. I'll let him say that. But he takes it so, he takes that responsibility so serious. Um, I understand why it kind of comes off as like a casual, but basically like, you know, he, it's, he wants to be right. And it hurts him hard 
when we come back and if we look at telemetry data for, or whatever, if his intuition on a battle is changed by what we saw in the data, hmm. because he wants to think that he's getting it right with what he's seeing on screen, you know? Um, and Ryan and Brian have been doing this for so long now, like, you know, in the early days, like Ryan was like super active on Instagram and be posting all the time and all this kind of stuff and be very like engaged or whatever. It hardens you. Yeah. Being a judge. You used to have the car stacks and, where and like, like all the liveries. Like that's how, that's how you'd always find out about liveries is yeah. It's Ryan's post. After a while of like, you know, public lashings and all that kind of stuff or whatever for even for, even for fans that you would like say, look, like it's not really a fair you know, thing that you're doing here. Yeah. Like for those of us that can say, say that, um, not like a, like a legitimate criticism, like, Hey, I really think you guys got this wrong. And here's my reason. Yeah. People just it, get ridiculous. Know, whatever, but like, yeah. Just tracking you down, like tracking you down, you know, tagging your mom into certain things, you know, that kind of stuff oh, I, where the normal person could say like, that sucks. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, they've gotten hardened by it. Right. And so now they're there to do a job. Right. And they don't, the outside doesn't matter to them anymore. And for Chris, like you jump into that fire and like, he got to see what it's like and it's crazy. Um, I couldn't imagine. So like, I think they, they, they are one of the primary reasons why we're going down this telemetry path is because I want them to feel good. I want to do and provide to them what they're asking for so they can feel better about their jobs because like, look, like these, these are not full real time, full time jobs. They're not making a lot of money doing this. Like you have to beg and plead to get people to do this position <laughs> and hope that they have the expertise to do it, mm -hmm. you know, um, because there's not a lot of people that have the ability to communicate, have the ability to scrutinize ju judging, have the ability to write rule books and then make consistent decisions on on battles that are very difficult to make sometimes and to have a to have a principled stance on the decision that you make even if it might be different than one of your other fellow judges um like that's like basically a shitty job like it's a horrible job <laughs> yeah it sucks um so you know like i feel for those guys and that is that's not the reason that robbie's coming back um Robbie's coming back because he's a contributor to the series. He does FD Japan. He's now can travel because of COVID stuff is all kind of gone. So those four guys are going to rotate. Oh, okay. Um, I was like, I'm like four judges. Year. Cool. Yeah. Like a new way. They're to all going to be decision. at the, they're all going to be at the events, um, but they're going to rotate. Uh, so the person that's out for any particular round is going to be our secondary driver steward with Sean. Oh, and just like help with protests and stuff like that. Well, it's basically, you know, like I want to try, like I want, I want as best as I can to create an empathetic relationship between the athletes and the judges. And I want them, the more that I see that those people interact on a personal level, the more that empathy comes across to me. Mm. And the best way to do that is to put yourself in those people's shoes, right? Yeah. And so that's what, and the driver steward is the, is the conduit to that. Right. So, you know, Lantane will be representing the drivers at at least two rounds this year. Eggert will be representing the drivers at at least two rounds this year. Same with Robbie, same with Chris. Interesting. And then on the, and then on the announcing side, um, it's going to be a rotational group of announcers as well. So it's going to be, um, Jared will be fixed. Okay. Like Sean is fixed. Yeah. Uh, Jared will be fixed. And then it'll be Robbie, 
me and um, and Lantane will rotate. Why'd you say it that way? Somebody will do qualifying. <laughs> well, I didn't really want to do this, um, but it is the 20th season, so it seems somewhat appropriate. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think, like, to support... So the last person that's going to be a commentator for prospect only is we're going to take Matt Sopa, who's oh, our starter. So good. He's got a great voice. So like good. he's he did our LA Auto Show demo and like give him a shot, you know. And so he's going to do he's going to do prospect with Jared, and I think I think he'll work out. And oh. I want to be here there to support him. So those four guys will be the announcers plus Jared. Those four judges will be the judges and they'll be rotating in and out. So it'll be, this is a very, very like different year relative to years past. So is that like, are you guys like every round you're rotating or different sections? Like someone covers qualifying, someone covers whatever, like, have you figured that out? Are you just going to like draw names out of a hat and be like, Hey, you get first 15, I get the next 15. No. So like, you know, um, I don't know what, like what other sports you're into, but you know, um, if you have long format sports, yeah. like say like right now up on in my office right now, there's a surfing event going on. In That's Australia, what I you're mean, checking on. on. Okay. Sorry. I just, I was like, in, in, in Hawaii. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, these are eight hour days yeah. that are all based on like, um, the swell and stuff like that. And they're 30 minute heats, essentially. Okay. Every 30 minutes, they rotate the set of announcers. Oh. And that's a pretty standard format for long format type stuff. Our stuff is basically considered long format because it's a minimum of three hours mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, unless we're dealing with a situation um, like qualifying where in the old school days, we might have like 26 drivers or something. We could probably knock that out in like two, two and a half or something. But yeah. for the most part... Um, or you're talking about like a, an old school prospect top 32, we could probably knock that out. But for the most part, we're long format. We're going to be anywhere between two and a half hours to four hours broadcast. And so you, somebody will do qualifying, somebody will do top 32, somebody will do top 16. Okay. And then I'll, and then Sopa's going to do all of prospect. Jesus. And just Jared just, just keeps yeah. talking and pumping stuff out constantly. Like the man is a machine. I can't, that honestly, like, don't get me wrong. I'm very happy to talk to all the drivers. I'm ecstatic to get Jared on because I know I just I, I feel like it'll be good I feel like it'll be a, a fun time and he has so much like information like he's so it's such a wealth why are you looking at me like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's funny it's funny because um I love Jared like you know uh the reason I stepped away from announcing in the first place I mean, the reason I got into announcing in the first place is kind of an interesting story. But the reason why I stepped away from announcing is because I just, when Jim left the company, there was really no way I felt that I could be at the events and be tied into the announcing full time. There's, just, it just didn't feel right to me. Kind of a conflict um, of interest. And I'm really glad. Well, conflict of interest in some sense, but also just like, look, you need somebody representing the company there from an executive capacity right sponsors all that stuff yeah okay yeah and and so my role became like what jim would do i was kind of my role but then i also stayed um pretty deeply tied to the production part of it as well yeah um because we we really do consider that our anchor is the live broadcast and so i wanted to make sure that that was that was correct um and the me stepping away just felt like it needed to happen. But when we started playing with this concept of like, we could have rotational announcers, rotational judges, then like, look, I could pop in for qualifying. Okay. Yeah. On Friday, 
boom, done. I'm done for the weekend. I could do a top 32, boom, yep. done, you know, and every, and then everything else still plays. And then like, look, we'll get to the end of the season and I'll say, you know what, that was sustainable for me. Or we'll say, you know what, that was a cool thing to do for the 20th season. You guys go ha have at it, okay. you know? Yeah. So, but on the Jared thing, on, on the Jared thing was like, uh, he, <laughs> he texted me like a couple of weeks ago at like 1130 at night dude, what's going on with this podcast? Oh, I'm like, I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's like, Oh, you know what it was? It was the clip that you put. It was the clip that you edited for, for the SEMA press conference. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. And that would, that, had, that was out somewhere. And I'm like, I'm like, where the hell has he been? Yeah. You know, did I was he, like, did he, he announced he was this the one at doing it? Like, was he like, did you sign me on? He's like, well, he, well, he's like, you know, I do podcasts, right? <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> oh, he's going to hate me for saying that. But, and I was like, dude, dude, I was like, it's not that dude. I'm like, like, look, look, we're doing like 35 episodes. Like he's doing a massive heavy lift. Like there's no way in hell you could have hosted on this podcast. No freaking way. Everything soup to nuts, the production, all yeah. that kind of stuff he's doing. <laughs> I know your setup, right? That's just not going to happen, but we would love to have you be a guest. Oh my God. <laughs> great, great primer. Thanks Ryan. And, cool. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I know that's why when you said that I started laughing because I'm like, Oh, I can't wait for you guys to talk, you know? Oh my so, God. Yeah. That's funny. He's going to probably hate me now. Uh, it's fine. I'm, I mean, apparently like <laughs> I'm, I'm crying. I'm, yeah. I'm gunning for him, but I, I still want to, I do. The dude's like, as, as somebody who's, as somebody who's like always enjoyed being public, I guess, like he's one of those guys I've looked up to and been like, okay, from like a practical sense, how do you physically speak for that many hours a day, like hours in a day, and be on. And I know he doesn't take notes. I know he doesn't, like, it's all here. But then he does that not only there, but like anywhere else it seems that anybody asks him. And then somehow knows the entire athletic field and all of their sponsors and all of their history. And it's like, how? Like, what What enables you as a human being to be able to do that? Because it it shouldn't work. It shouldn't be possible for you to maintain that much knowledge and then still just be like a general guy, like outside of it, right? Because like you get him out of the broadcast. It's, it is he's, absurd. He's, he's just, he's a dude. He'll talk to you about golf and, and just, you know, shoot the shit for hours. It's, it's crazy. I, honestly, like I, I know Jared for some, for a certain segment of fans gets a lot of crap because like he's very over the top. Yeah, but that's what you need. And people have to remember, here's the, here's what I say. Like people have to remember this, like, what other sport do you have where the right way to do it is that the live event announcer is also the broadcast announcer at the same time? Right. <clears throat> right. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And, and the reason we went this direction is because we really needed to have one voice for both platforms because of the nature of the sport. Yeah. So the live event fans experience the same thing as the broadcast fans. And actually from a technical perspective, and you'll appreciate this, that's actually very difficult. Really? I thought it'd be well, no, it's easier. Very, it's, 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 it's easier from a system standpoint. Yeah. It's difficult to get the, the, the sound quality oh. that you want to have. Because if you put somebody, if you put like you in a studio that's soundproof and you're just in there talking and then you have the guy that's outside, mm -hmm. that's super easy to do, right? And it's going to be very, that the sound for the live stream is going to be very consistent because it's controlled. Right. Now what happens is we've got all these mics around the venue. 
We've got these guys. Sometimes they're inside. Sometimes they're outside. Right. So like our, it's crazy. Our, um, our audio engineer is like one of the biggest parts of our deal. Yeah. Like we need a certain kind of guy that can get that right because we, you can't, you don't want it to sound too tinny. You don't want it to sound like it's having reverberations or popping back into other mics and stuff like that. But we've always felt that that's a really important aspect to it. And like, it's just absurd. You know, he probably does a hundred thousand words, you know, a day. Yeah. And like how he does that plus everything else that he is able to do on an event weekend. And I also know a lot about his personal life and like his other things that he works on. Yeah. I honestly don't know a lot of people that could manage that in the way that he does. And, so and like, like, he's just yeah. like alien. And, and like a great dad who's involved in his kids' lives, but he's also traveling all over the world. And then like, you know, has his own like merch setup. Like I just, I, I very much love and respect Jared. And, and for people who are like, oh, you know, like he, he said this thing. I'm like, listen, most people can barely talk for 15 minutes without screwing something up. Somebody who's speaking for hours and hours, it's going to happen. Like, it's just, it's just, I guarantee in this podcast, someone's going to fact check things that we've said and just provide a list of everything that we got wrong. And that. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Like, um, when I, when I first started doing this, um, people probably don't really remember this, but in the very early days where we, we there was no TV, no, um, I mean, the TV was, you know, being, being recorded, but it was being voiced in a studio yeah, after. And it was really like the live event was really just like the, the live announcing Jared and I used to do it together as, as a pair. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, uh, or Jared used to do it by himself. I'm sorry. Jared used to do it by himself. Um, and then somebody came up and said, um, you know, Hey, this guy needs somebody to bounce off. Somebody has got to do it or whatever. And I, from the beginning, him and I had been doing the TV show. We'd been doing the live announcing TV show. Right. And that all happened kind of by accident because we, we, there was no like drifting, drifting talent back in the days. Right. <laughs> yeah. And Jared worked at a shoe company and I was like, this guy is like, he talks kind of cool. He's got an interesting personality. Maybe he could do this. And so he came in and started being our announcer. And then he started doing our announcing on the TV show as well. Mm -hmm. And then the, they were like the, the, I think it was ESPN. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Because uh, the G4 didn't, G4 didn't have us. Um, they did like the recaps. They're right? like, he needs. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we, well, we were doing live to tape style type calls. You know, okay. we were basically pretending that it was live and they're like, you know, I was interfacing with them and they're like, you need to do it. You should do it. And um, I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot or whatever. So anyways, we get to the studio, which is all the way up in, um, Portland, the production company is in Portland and we're going to film, we're going to film, sorry, we're going to edit and uh, voice like four or five episodes or something. And you have to remember, like at this time, I'm in the same position that I am now. I'm one of the co-founders of the company, whatever I'm executive, blah, 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 that kind of thing. Get into the booth, start doing it. And we, we in there for maybe like 20, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour. And basically the guy's like, Hey, I need to talk to you real quick. Come on out with me. He's like, never good. He's like, I don't know how to say this, but you're dog shit. <laughs> you're really bad. He's like, you have a monotone, not fun, not entertaining. Um, not exciting, not storytelling voice. Cool. And something 
needs to give or we have to find a way to replace you. And I don't know how to do that because I don't know any drifting commentators. And it like hit me like a ton of bricks. I bet. And it, I was like, oh crap. So if you ever go back and listen to some of the early broadcasts or watch any of the television shows that we've uploaded to YouTube, you'll understand what I'm saying. I did have like a very kind of like monotony, not very like good cadence up and down. Yeah. Um, non-storytelling style type voice. My dad, my dad actually as a side gig, this is how I got into the DJ thing. Um, my dad is like a really good MC. Okay. And he used to be the voice of Magic Mountain actually. No. Um, when he would walk into the parks and be like, oh, welcome to Magic Mountain and all this kind of stuff. And um, I was like, dad, you got to tell me how to do this. Like, I'm going to get kicked off. I'm going to get kicked off my own show. <laughs> And so he gave me some pointers to it or whatever, and I found my voice. But the person that really helped me the most was Jared. Ah. He's like, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. This is how you develop a cadence where you go up and down. Bring him in, push him out. you have a yeah. pregnant pause. Yeah. And so if it, weren't, if it weren't for him, I probably wouldn't have done all that stuff. So like, there's a certain appreciation that I have for him personally um, that you know doesn't get a lot of credit because it's easy to make fun of a guy that talks for eight hours a day. Yeah, I'm I'm already waiting for the comments on mine, so I'm just I'm just priming myself. I've been, you know, just just going to therapy ahead of time. You know, getting getting ready for it. But I mean, it's 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 it is what it is. It'll be fine. I tell myself it is what it is. It is yeah. what it is. Yeah. Uh, the only I I mean I know we're pretty much at two hours already, but there's one question I really want to know. When, what happened, like, not what happened with Jim, but like, how did, how does that, how did that conversation start with him stepping away? Like, how, was he just like, I'm not, and I don't want to put like you to put words in his mouth, or maybe I can just have him on to answer that. But like, that's big. And I don't know if people really like appreciated what happened. I felt, I feel like mm -hmm. in my mind, it felt very glossed over. And it's like, oh, Ryan's just gonna like take over and stuff. I'm like, well, hang on, this is this is a big, big deal, and and obviously the position he's in now is incredible, and he's he's crushing it. And I, I got to see him at uh, at PRI quickly and just kind of say hi. He's no idea who the hell I was. That's fine. Um, but like, how does that how does that come about? Can I if you if whatever you can divulge? Sure. So, I mean, yeah. And two, you know, two hours is not a problem for me. We can, I'm you know, alone in the office right now, so we can go as long as you need. Sweet. But um, <laughs> the, so I was actually in Jackson Hole. Um, I fell in love with, with Wyoming a couple of years ago and my fiance and I um, were starting to go to this cool ranch in Jackson um, that one of her parents' friends owns. And it was really, really cool. I've never done anything. It's totally like Yellowstone. It's like just amazing and all this cool, you know, really cool dope fishing and like hanging okay. out in the wilderness and stuff. And like that's stuff that I really like. I happened to be, I happened to land in Jackson, um, like in the middle, in the middle of our summer break, we had a, we had a period like in 2020, uh, yeah. 2020, yeah, 2021 where we had like a longer break than usual. And so that's when we went to Jackson and um, I was, I had landed and he's like, Hey, he texted me and was like, Hey, I really need to talk to you about something. And it had the vibe of, Oh crap. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like that's the vibe that it the had. Girlfriend that's text, the girlfriend texts like, Hey, when you get across. home, we need to, we need to talk about something You're like, great. 
hundred percent, hundred percent. So, and, and I, and I, like, I'm, I'm so used to, oh crap in FD. Like I'm, <laughs> it doesn't really affect me that much anymore. You know, like, oh crap is basically like what the constituents yeah, yeah, <laughs> are the constituents of my life basically. Um, and so I called him up and like, I could tell he was nervous a little bit and he was like, basically like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to step down. Um, there's another opportunity that I have and, you know, I really want to explore it. And so I don't want to put words in his mouth, yeah. but that was my experience that I had. Basically, he essentially, I think he's older than I am. And he had really kind of taken this to a point where I believe that he felt he had given everything that he had. Okay. Um, and that there was not much more for him to do. Um, and this other opportunity presented itself in such a way where like, look, like if you're not being inspired, if you're not being motivated, if you're not like waking up in the morning, throwing the covers off, going crazy, I get that. Like, you know, that's definitely sucks. And a lot of people have that. I've had little stints of that from time to time. Um, but that was basically the vibe that I got from him. And so, you know, it wasn't a question of like, Hey, you know, if we did X, Y, and Z, would you stay? It was like, he was pretty committed to doing it. Yeah. He had a foot at the door. Yeah. And so, uh, but he was very, very understanding about how significant it was. And he essentially said, look, whatever you need, um, I will do. And look, this is the biggest compliment to me. And this is why I love Jim so much and that we have such a good relationship, even though like we are so different, mm -hmm. um, our personalities are so different. They were very complimentary in a lot of different ways in our business because we, it, they're very yin and yangy. Yeah. Right. Um, and um, there's really good parts about that. And there's also challenging parts about that. I mean, you, you know, this like having partners it, is sometimes uh, it, it's a it's a crutch, but it's also a shared responsibility. Um, checking a balance. If you don't have a partner, yeah, if you don't have that partner, you have more responsibility, but you don't have anybody checking you. Yeah. And so that either one of those scenarios can be really good or really bad. Um, and we just happen to find a you know the the nice kind of like balancing point there. But the biggest compliment that he paid to me was like, I can do this because I know you guys can run the company without Ooh. me. Is that one and of those? So like, like oh, I was like, oh, right in the field. Yeah. 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 For sure. Definitely want to, because I was nervous about that, right? Like you don't, I, we've been doing up to, from that point, we had been doing this for 18 years with each other. Right. Wow. And like, I've spent more time with him than pretty much anybody, including, um, you know, family members and close friends and all that kind of stuff. Right. Like in developing business plans and going to meetings, like we were mostly at the hip all the time. We always conferred about everything mm -hmm. and not having that dynamic was going to be very, very weird. And so he was very like insistent on making sure that I was happy with how the transition would take place. And so that was in the summer. And we decided that basically by the time we got to Irwindale, he would have been phased out. Um, and that allowed him to communicate that with PRI basically, and then gave me an opportunity to kind of develop what the plan was going to be, you know, assuming that, that, plan was going to resonate with the current employee um, staff that we have and the ways that we, you know, needed to communicate that and all that kind of stuff. And like, it's honestly been like the most, um, 
challenging but inspiring last year and a half of my life for sure yeah um because like it's i'm not by myself but i'm by myself relative to how it was with jim before yeah right like i don't have that person i mean he's there at a moment's notice but like look when we're in the office every day together it's just different yeah um and i don't have that anymore you know so but i also i also don't have to get somebody else to agree so we can be more efficient in certain ways as well. That's very scary, um, but yeah. it also can be good in certain circumstances, you know? So like that, it's been very thrilling the past couple, you know, the past 18 months of being in this position um, in a lot of different ways. And, um, you know, he's been super supportive of, you know, the whole time and we still communicate and all that kind of stuff. But like, yeah, it was shocking for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it was just how you guys handled it from like a PR front, but I remember hearing about it and be like, oh, we're going to hear more. Like there'll be like this roadmap and they'll have all this. And then it was kind of it. And then I was like, okay. Yeah. Like, and then, and then I obviously yeah. I heard about where, where he went and what he's doing. I'm like, okay, this makes sense. But it was like, you know, I kind of, for me, I got, I, I felt like I got left in limbo of like, was there trouble in the water or was it like, same thing? Like, Hey, I, this, I've given all that I can give and now I'm at the point of like, maybe not holding back, but like, I'm not inspired to continue to push this where it needs to be. Because admittedly, when, when I had heard that it was changing over, you know, specifically to you, I went, oh, in my opinion, Ryan is a lot more progressive and will try crazy shit and will like go and do stuff. And I always felt, and I don't know Jim very well, but like, I always felt like he was very reserved and like, okay, let's we're going to think this through. We're going to roadmap this. We're going to plan this. We're going to do all this stuff. Whereas I got the vibe that you were kind of more like, no, no we, we got to try this thing. Like, this, this, look at the, look at this thing. We got to do this thing. So I was, I was excited in the fact that I knew the progression of the sport was going to happen fast. But I also know with driving fast, it can be rocky. So it was like, as, as this Uber fan, I was like, oh, like, here's what's going to happen, but here's the consequences surrounding it. And it it sounds like even through this whole conversation, that's what you've been battling. Like, like these conversations about the data stuff, and you're, like, very excited, like, changing and judging. You're, like, super excited, but what if, where, whereas if maybe if Jim was there, the discussion would have been, well, hang on. If we change this, you know what's going to happen, right? So it almost feels— No, no, you're—, you're you're right on. You're you're right on. Yeah, it, it, I am a little bit more wild. It, it feel, well, it feels like honestly, it, like, and I, this once again, this is nothing against Jim, but it feels like the co- like going to college, where like the parent isn't there to be like, hey, you can't live off ramen. Where like it's kind of like okay, but I, now I can go out and I can party later and I can do this stuff. Like, I know I know you're not that extreme. I don't even think I've ever yeah. seen you have a drink, um, but like that—that's I don't know. Maybe that's the vibe I get. I'm excited. Like, don't don't take it the wrong way. It's just, but no, I, that's a really interesting read, and there's a lot of truth to it from my perspective as well. Um, I think the balance that we had had a lot of really positive traits to it that helped the business. I mean, but look at, at the at the end of the day, the company in large part 
survived the 2008 crisis because of Jim's philosophy. The company in large part survived COVID because of Jim's philosophy and the personal sacrifices that he made, mm -hmm. which I won't say, but let's just say it's in the category of making sure everybody else had a job yeah. and not caring about himself. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so like that kind of um, perspective basically allowed us to be alive when everybody thought that we should be dead within the first five years. Yeah. Um, and I, and I agree with, you know, 99% of that, but I, but yeah, I do also have differences in approach to him um, on a, on a variety of topics that I don't know if they're better or worse. Yeah. Um, you just have to go out and kind of do it and just, and see what happens. But, you know, you should talk to him and like, see what, what he thinks. Like we've talked about this um, ad nauseum between him and myself in terms of like, like, what does it mean? And, you know, making sure that I'm comfortable and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so like, we, we did, it was not one of those, like the partners are breaking up type of thing. And we no. never even really thought about it. This is probably like, you know, the one, one of the, one of the things that we like totally are similar about is like, we are not very good self promoters. So like when we, the reason why we did what we did is because we felt that part was necessary telling people that he was going to be leaving the company. Mm -hmm. Um, but why you didn't see a roadmap or what we were going to do or whatever um, is basically just like, doesn't really feel like in line with our personalities. However, like we did spend a lot of time talking to the teams about it. Yeah. And um, we, we, we got in front of the teams. We told them how it was going to go, you know, what Jim's responsibilities were going to be during the transition moving forward, what his, what his perceived um, role was going to be when he went to PRI, how that might benefit us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just to kind of like make sure everybody felt good w about what was going to be going on and that, you know, it wasn't one of those things like, oh, there's a breakup and you yeah. know, now everything's going to go to shit, you know? So that was important to make sure that people didn't think that. Yeah. It's like the, the, the parents as, as, as a child of, of several divorces, it's like the parents breaking up or like you're explaining to the kids, okay, don't worry. Like you're going to get two Christmases and like, you know, we're still friends, but like we just, you know, Dad's got a new girlfriend in Cuba, so he's going to be there now, like <laughs> in yeah. in the best yeah. possible way, right? That's it's just yeah. I mean, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for the sport. I'm I'm interested to see where it goes. Like I'm, dude. I'm I'm so happy just to be on the coattails right now of like being like, okay, this is what's going on. Um, but it it definitely it it it. Not that it changes anything fundamentally, but it's just a it's just a new mindset. Like we talked about F one and and like the Bernie era, and then like how that how that yeah. shifted, and then they allowed, you know, they allowed drivers to have social media, they allowed drivers to self promote, and that just fundamentally that changed everything. <laughs> yeah, and then you know that yeah. that becomes that becomes a new era, and then then you get drive to survive. That's that is the new era. You talked about. You talked about the housewives because my wife is a huge F1 fan specifically because of that show. Like you hit the nail so hard on the head with that. Like <laughs> but that's that's what it is. Like this is to me this is probably one of the most definitive years in this sport that we're going to see. And I I I have a bad habit of making predictions early 
And and I'm of the opinion, if you get it wrong, no one will remember. But if you get it right, everyone will talk about it. So maybe that's why I do it. Uh, but yeah, just, I'm excited. Like, is there is there anything else? Like, I know we're, we're getting real deep into this, but like, is there is there anything else that like, we could talk about with this year? Like, uh, you you had mentioned at SEMA, like the, uh, uh, sorry, the Hall of Fame, which I think is pretty, pretty fucking cool. <laughs> like, indeed. Yeah, uh, there's, I mean, there's so, like, uh, Brian, our, our sales director, um, who's like a dear friend of mine as well. We used to be roommates back in the day. Um, we were talking about it today. We're like, dude, we've never done so many new things in a singular year. And many of them came about organically. Like there's going to be multiple releases that you'll probably see in like the coming weeks with, you know, from the consumer based app to like the new judging rule, uh, rules and regulations going out to, um, you know, obviously people will know about this in a more, in a more robust way. Um, we've got a bunch of other like digital campaign things that we're doing. Nice. We've got, you know, this, the, the new, the new technology side of things. And then we did the hall of fame and we also like added like a hundred and like basically a hundred percent of the registrations, um, that we receive in is going back to the teams in the form of prize money. So we're, we're going to be like just, just shy of like $300,000 in prize money. And we've always paid a good, a decent amount of prize money for the model that we are in, yeah. right? The model that we are in without a television rights deal, without a collective bargaining agreement with athletes and all that kind of stuff, basically usually is a percentage of your driver registrations. Right. And typically like 30, 30%, 30%, 40% is pretty good. We've always been about like 50 to 60, but we increased that from like 60 to a hundred, maybe 105%. That's cool. So we're paying out. We're, we're doubling the championship purse. We're doubling the per round for one, two, three. We're doubling the championship purse for prospect. And then we're doing this hall of fame thing and the hall of fame thing. There's like a couple different elements to it. One is, you know, I wanted to create something that would have like a lasting kind of legacy feel to it. Mm -hmm. So we reached out to the company that does the major league baseball and NFL super bowl and, um, uh, World Series rings, okay, and we got them to make a a ring for each Hall of Fame um, inductee. Oh, cool! And like, uh, I could show you like what it looks like and stuff like that. But it's it's a ten thousand dollar ring. Jesus, it's got like pretty pretty meaty. Yeah. <laughs> so there. So we're gonna do two inductions this year. We're gonna do them at Long Beach, um, and then we'll probably do you know, at least one or two inductions a year moving forward. Okay. Part of that is that the city of Long Beach donated basically a piece of land to us for us to put a monument to memorialize the names that go in as Hall of Fame inductees. So Damn. I don't think we'll have that ready to go um, by Long Beach just because it's like involves the city and like city stuff and government stuff. Yeah, and, and the city of but Long Beach is not know where it's is not known for working quickly or you know <laughs> being super great to work with. Uh, no city is really. Yeah, okay. But yeah. <laughs> yes. It, um, but it, we know where it's going to be. It's going to be at the Long Beach Convention Center on the grass, like where you walk up to our box office. And it's probably going to be a slab of concrete or a structure of steel. And then we'll memorialize the people's names that get inducted on there. And then probably Saturday um, before opening ceremonies or during opening ceremonies, we'll do those two inductions. And, you know, 
for those wondering who it is, I don't know if we're going to say it, it um, as a surprise or if we're going to do it as a, this is who it is, get ready, they're coming, whatever that kind of thing. And yeah. then build some like promotional stuff around it because I, there seems to be a reason to do that as well. Um, like, you know, having a mixer and maybe like, you know, taking some old prints from Larry and putting them up and letting people see them and having the public come and blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. We're talking about ideas like that. But yeah, that's another thing that we're doing. So you know, I'm really excited about it. The marketing guy in me says, let people know a couple weeks in advance and then and then do it. But I mean, yeah. the, once again, the fan in me is like, no, nah, just make me wait. Like, I just... <laughs> I know, I know. I, I I think like the you know the this person and this person are being inducted into the form the inaugural year of the Formula Drift Hall of Fame at Long Beach. That for the marketing person in me, I like that yeah. a lot, right? Um, and that's the way that most other sports do it. No, they're never doing it like the Emmys or the Academy Awards, where the winner is. You know, they don't do it like that. Yeah. Um, you kind of know like once the vote tally comes in. But our thing is not um, the way that we structure the Hall of Fame is that there's no limit on the number of inductees that we'll do. Well, there is a limit because I don't have $10,000 to make every time a ring happens. I have to kind of like, you know, go out and, and um, get the funding for that. But um, we're, we decided to do two because we think there's two guys that at the beginning of the of the championship's birth um, were significant enough. And, and on an equal playing field in terms of like the, their ambassadorship to the sport. Mm. But it's not just drivers that are eligible for the Hall of Fame. It's anybody within the industry that has made a significant contribution such that the sport would not have been the, the same without them. Ooh, I like so that. From media personnel to fabricator, from fabricator to design person, um, there's a lot of people that you can't imagine what the sport would have been like had they not been involved. And so like they would be up to be inducted. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> there's a chance for you. Get a I few got, more years. I got to keep, I got to keep pushing <laughs> this. <laughs> that's, that's cool. That's, that's good. And I think, I mean, that legacy and that, like, uh, for example, I was at the hockey hall of fame, like this past week with my son. And it was like, I remember talking about how, when I went, when I was his age with my dad, like very similar setup, the age gap is almost identical. Like I went with my dad, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I want to go see the goalie mask and the jerseys and stuff. And my dad's like, no, you're going to get a picture with me in front of the Stanley Cup and we're going to do that. Because my dad has a photo with his dad in the exact same room in front of that exact same cup. And it, like, and then I had to oh, do it with my cool. son where he's like, he's like, dad, I just want to go check. Like, cool. Let's go do this. I'm like, no, like, like you're going to get this photo cuz right now it means nothing to you but and and when i was your age it meant nothing to me but for me it means everything and like i sent my dad the photo and he sent me the one anyways but like having that i love that that place that. though right like giving people that place cuz that place for a lot of us is 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 irwindale and like that that's a whole other thing i don't even want to get into that of like you know that being around and not around and the coins and all that shit but like we need to, as drifting fans, we, we need to have an always place, right? Whatever you want to call it, whatever. If you want to add some religious element to it or worship element, perfect, whatever. But we need to have that place where, like, we can go and be like, this is it. Like, this is where it started. This is where this person was. This is our walk of fame. This is whatever, right? Like that. Yep. It, and and it's the same thing. It's, it's I always try in these moments of, like, 
okay, it doesn't mean a lot right now. This guy's getting a couple rings, whatever. But it's not about us or me or you now. It's it's for the fans who are just getting in and be like, I remember that person being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And that's what changes it from yeah. like, you know, a sport to like, to, to, to a culture and like a group of people and, and something that becomes greater than the sum of its parts, right? So, like, same thing. I know I'm no, I, reading I completely way too much agree into with it, that. It's no, 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 but I, I really liked what you said there. And, like, you know, when we were thinking about this, um, one part was being motivated by, like, hey, it's the 20th season. Yeah. This, it, it's probably appropriate. I mean, we could wait till the 25th season and maybe that would be equally appropriate, but um, it, it just kind of felt like so. Like, we started s- seeing our first like set of drivers that are kind of like retired. You know, yeah. Um, because like for me, Reese and Sam and Tanner and um some of the other like bigger names that like left the sport didn't retire. They left to go do other things. You know, yeah. or they they came in and drifting in stints, like how Tanner did. Came in for a little bit, got the Top Gear thing, left to go do that. Came, came back, back for did a couple another rounds. season. And yeah, then, you know, yeah. It's just like obviously like when you have opportunities that he does, you know, it makes sense to do those kind of things. Um, and so like, it felt appropriate for the 20th season, but it also felt appropriate for Long Beach because we, when we first started talking about this, we thought the most obvious places to do it would be Irwindale, would be Road Atlanta, or would be Long Beach. And exactly what you said was like the tough part about Irwindale. Who knows what's gonna happen? Yeah put a monument there and in a couple of years it's getting bulldozed down that doesn't really make a lot of sense road atlanta definitely has the the nostalgia appeal was the very first event they were the first to contribute to the sport and they were they were going to let us do it too but long beach is where we're from this is where this this is where the sport started for jim and myself yeah um long beach has been where our office has been since the beginning, basically. Um, and it's where I feel our most iconic event is. Mm. It's the only event that we have that we actually have to work with an entire city to do. And when you think about like the roots of drifting, um, not the weird, crazy stuff that we say nowadays with like what kids are doing and like how some people think that that's drifting. Like, what are you? What are those videos called again? Uh, takeover videos. Those crazy ones. Yeah, the takeover uh, videos. Yeah, like all that crap. Not that, but <laughs> the days where like you know people were you know drifting on the docks and in the mountain hills and all that kind of stuff. For anybody that knows the history of Long Beach, that has always existed here. Yeah, and especially in the early days, especially at the port of Long Beach and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's just a deep history here in Southern California. You know, this is where our office is and this is where like our, one of our most iconic events is because it's also a street course and dude, they jumped on it fast. They were like, yeah, we're down. Let's do it. Really? So that's how how we're going to do it. Yeah. Oh, dude, I'm, I'm so excited about that for like the exact same reason I discussed before. Like I know, like I, as a, as a drifting enthusiast, that is obviously passed down to my kids and like whether I mean not that I'm forcing them to watch it but like you know hey no like this is we're hanging out we're doing this and, and it's been a little weird now just being at all the events because like before it was like no it became that ritual of like sitting down and watching it right uh now we'll watch the replays or my kids will watch it at home and like 
try and look for me. I'll like text them, be like, "Hey, this is the media pit I'm in," and then they're like, "This <laughs> is where I am. This is my jersey number." So like, yeah, take a look. Oh yeah, no, it's happened. Um, but I, like, I'm excited to have a place that that I can go and like take them there. And be like, ah, oh, this is it. This yeah. is, you know, whatever. Like, you, we can speculate. And, you know, there's people that you know are going to get in there at some point in time, whether it's not today or this year. Um, but that that part to me, like, as, and and once again, I know there are bigger fans than I am. I know there's fans that have been around a lot longer than I have. But as the fan that I am, that was such a service to us, whether we know it yet or not, is is kind of how I look at it. Look, I mean, like, I believe in the sport. Um, I, I've i always thought that the sport was special. Yeah. Um, drifting has a lot of natural constraints to it that, you know, in my time, for what I can contribute to the sport, it's never going to be like NASCAR. It's never going to be as big as NASCAR per se. It's not going to be a multi-billion dollar business in, in my lifetime. But... <clears throat> And, th- and that's just because like nobody makes drifting tracks, right? Like um, I, we were going through this the other day, like looking at the actual applicable venues that would work for our events. There's 900 stadiums in the United States. There's 1,500 racetracks, not all of which are paved, many of which are old. Those fi- most of those 1,500 tracks are here because of what NASCAR did in the development of automotive racing in, right. in the early years and a lot of the short course oval tracks and dirt tracks and stuff like that. The amount of tracks that work that work for us as a, as a sport with ingress, egress, flow, out, grandstands, pro- appropriate paddock space, burnout box, all that kind of stuff is probably 20. <sighs> probably 20. Um, and, you know, of those 20, we're already using up eight. Of those 12, the ones that we would add, the ones that we would swap out for the ones we have, maybe one, and and we are not really in a position to add on because like the drivers pretty much overwhelmingly don't want to add events right now. Yeah. So like I just know like look the eight events is eight events to maybe ten events over the next five years is kind of what it's going to be, mm-hmm. um, and so I kind of understand like like there's a natural constraint to that on t- in terms of. Like how many bodies you can get through the door, how many broadcasts you can have. That doesn't mean there's not opportunity. I mean, there's tons of opportunity. Where like what we were talking about with, you know, drive to survive stuff. Like we're out actively, you know, pitching that kind of stuff. And if something like that hits, I feel as confident about the stories that we can tell about fill in your fill in the blank with your favorite driver. Yeah. And comparing that to everything that you see in Drive to Survive. Probably more absurd, more crazy, more out of control, by the way. I mean, um, as, some, as you're very well aware We of. got some personalities yeah. hanging around these parts. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe, I mean, I've always <laughs> believed in the sport. I always, I think that it is a really unique, awesome, amazing thing. But I also am honest with myself. Like at the end of every year, I take inventory. And, and especially after the first event, I'm like, are we still there? You know, like... Mm sometimes things just change, you know? And like, that's, that's kind of crazy because for all 20 years that we've been doing this, we've never had an event go backwards. It's always gone forward, whether it's been very incrementally small or massive. Mm. And, you know, the, 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 per, the, like the, the statistician and the probability calculus should be saying, don't worry about that, Ryan, it's going to be fine. But like, I, always have to be honest and basically be like, where are we at 
with the sport? Like how fast is it progressing? Where, where are the opportunities and stuff like that? And if you don't appreciate that, I think, um, it becomes very difficult to like figure out how much of your heart to put into it because there's, there's going to be times where it's going to really suck and it's going to be really, really hard to do. But if you don't fundamentally believe in the sport and you're just kind of like along for as long as it'll go or whatever, you won't put that kind of energy into it. So, you know, that's the reason for the hall of fame, right? That's a way for us to basically be like, look, we're in this, you know, yeah. <laughs> until they shut us down, we're in it. Cause we're going to build, you know, build this thing and we're going to have to, you know, con continually, um, build people up so that they can get inducted in there. And it's going to be, you know, like treated like the major league baseball hall of fame and the NFL hall of fame and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, there's just, uh, there's a lot of things to, to think about this year, like tons of new stuff that we're doing. I'm sure, you know, you'll, we'll probably have some subsequent conversations about it or whatever. And, um, you know, I'd always, I always come into the season with a little bit of trepidation. And then as soon as I get to the first round and we have the opening ceremonies, I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, this is what it's all about. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, I mean, I can't, I can't think of a better note to finish things on that. It's a, it's a good way to close out. I'm, I'm excited. Um, I want to say thank you for letting me and the team do this. I'm excited to bring stories and, and give drivers an opportunity to have a place to have these longer form conversations, talk about stuff they've never been able to talk about before, get into the controversies, like, you know, let, let, let the drivers get to tell everybody who they are. And, and that's, that's the part I'm the most excited about. I want those awesome conversations that happen in the pits and those like crazy technical, crazy deep like connections it just to be public and give the fans that service. Because that's, to me, is the next big thing is like, let's, let, I, I, want, the, I want the fans to, to see what we've seen in the pits and what these drivers are like and what they don't get to see in the 30 second interview on the, or on the podium or whatever. They like that, that's the part I'm excited about right now. And me yeah. too, man, me too. And like, I think like my philosophy has always been like, I don't like shying away from things. I don't like the idea that you're not talking about something because you don't want to talk about it. I mean, for heaven's sakes, like I've spent Saturday nights answering YouTube comments. Yeah. You know? So I still do that kind of stuff. And like, I, I put myself out there and like, we'll give fans my cell phone number or my office line or my email or whatever, if they want to correspond. And this is just a more professional extension of that, <laughs> in my opinion, where I don't want, I don't want you guys to feel like you need to be able to be, you don't have to worry about what questions you want to ask that you can just go and get those stories. Um, and kind of like have that contribution to the, the sport and to the industry that we haven't really done because we haven't done anything like this before. So like, I'm stoked that you're the tour guide, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. And you know, you guys are doing a lot, but uh, I think it's all going to be worth it. It's been, uh, it's been fun so far. I'm excited to see where it goes. There's so many conversations I'm excited for. Um, and just even in the beginning, just the, the quick conversations I've had with drivers and, and staff and everybody else, it's, it's going to be wild. So, uh, cool, man. yeah, that's sick. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, please make sure to subscribe. You know, check it out. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. Check out the video stuff too, because like I think that I think that's definitely important. Uh, especially if you're listening, you need to go back and watch this, and you can figure out what Ryan's childhood nickname is because it's right behind him. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> you're going to have to go see it. Uh, but 
any anything else from you, or we just wrapping it up? No, this has been really cool, man. I, I'm I'm super appreciative to to be a part of like some of the opening parts of the of the rollout for the podcast, and I appreciate you thinking about me. And um, I'm really excited to kind of like get the the season kicked off. And I, what I'm really excited about, and I you could cut this out of the podcast if you want to, but I, I'm really interested to see how you guys are going to approach the at event stuff because to me that has the possibility to create a lot of really fun and interesting things. <laughs> oh, uh, well, we'll talk about it. We've got, we got plans. Okay. So cool. Well, thanks everybody cool. for listening. I'm not cutting that out. That's staying in there. That's your teaser for the year. All right. So cool. Thanks again, everybody. And uh, yeah, just make sure to catch the next one. 